In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God. Glory to thee, heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, O treasure of your good and bestower of life. Come and dwell us and cleanse the very stain and save our souls, O good one. Sit down. Okay, today's talk may be, for some of you, a little painful, but we shouldn't adopt the um, Western mentality, which is to have a life of no pain, because the Eastern part of the world understand whether it's the Arabs, even the Muslims, or those that come from Eastern Orthodox countries, etc., they understand a little bit better what pain is. They're not as fussy as in the West, where they have this mentality that they want to have no pain and no suffering. And this is the problem that people find in general with life, and that's why they have to go on medication or some drink or some commit suicide, some take drugs, or some do whatever they have to do to run away from this pain. Now, what pain am I speaking about? Does it mean if we're sick and we're in pain that we shouldn't try to alleviate the pain? Of course, we do to a certain level, but it doesn't mean that if the pain doesn't go away, it's the end of the world because it could be beneficial. But there's also spiritual pain, pain from within, which a lot of people describe it as depression, when they describe this pain from within, they speak about like a burning or they feel like they're in hell or they feel like it's so unbearable that they can't take it. And here, when you come, at times, the, the talk can't be something which is just sweet and nice and comfortable because if it is, it means that something's not going right. My aim is to penetrate, well, of course with God's help, to penetrate into your hearts and even my own, which is really cold and hard. And hearts that are cold and hard really cannot soften without suffering. So even though some things I'm going to say tonight could be painful, it doesn't mean that you've got to run away or start some type of warfare and say, oh, he's a bad priest, whatever things like that. I mean, if you want to do that, that's up to you. But don't run away, which I will explain later on, people that have done that and what happened to them. It's not good to run away from pain continually. So let's see. The first section is what are some of the reasons people believe in God? As we know, it's not just Orthodox Christians that believe in God, Muslims believe in God, Jews believe in God. So the Christians, the Jews and the Muslims believe in one God, monotheistic. But there are others, like Hindus, etc., that believe in many gods, you know, some type of divine things that they believe in. But the point is here, I'm going to ask a general question. Why does anyone believe in God? What's some of the reasons? Now, I've been reading some excellent books lately, and um, one writer there, he's a theologian, and even though I spoke some what negative against theologians in some of the other talks, I did say that there are also some excellent ones, 
The difference is that some are spiritual, but some are not. They're just intellectual. This particular person, which I'll mention his name later on, is quite spiritual. Now, for a lot of people, it's better that God exists. It's an advantage that God exists, because if God exists, if the notion of, of a God exists, and we know that God helps us, a lot of people want that help. Because a lot of times in life, we come to the crossroads of something where either we can't get better in sickness or family problems or anything. So people want God to exist. And they want God to give them happiness. They want not to experience sorrow, like I said before. They don't want to experience difficulties. They don't want to experience disasters. They don't want to experience sickness. They don't want to experience war. In other words, so that God would take care of all their needs and desires. And for many, of course, God does help. Now, some of you might say, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't it good to pray to God not to have war? And is it good to pray to God not to have a disaster or to get sick? Yes, but there's still something wrong with it, which we'll see as time goes on. In and of itself, it's not good. For example, as I said, some actually want God to help them in times of sickness, or so they don't get sick at all. Find a, house, a husband or a wife, like when we did the, the paraclysis of St. Xenia, the church was full, because I, on purpose, on the advertisement, wrote that St. Xenia helps with unemployment, financial problems, finding spouses, etc., and the church was quite full. Not full today, but. So that shows that people do like that. But to come and hear things about their soul or about other things, they're not that keen. And, of course, that's good to a certain level. That's what the saints, they're, they're here to help us. But is that all they're here for? They also, people want a God or gods to believe in because they want to be able to pray to them and ask them help for their children, for their studies. The children can get good jobs later on. Or some people go to their God or gods so that the stock market goes well. didn't go well lately, but the prayers weren't answered for some. For some, it's just to make more money, to become rich, to become social. There's a lot of reasons. Now... The Hillsong people, the Protestants, they actually advertise that by believing in God, you'll have prosperity, you'll have happiness, you'll have a lot of good that comes from going to their church. As someone told me who actually goes there, a person who's like half-half, like comes to orthodoxy a bit, but he still is attracted to there because he was brought up with that. And uh, he actually said to me, that's true what you're saying. They do speak a lot about making money, you know, having good jobs, power, etc. And a lot of people um, go for that reason. And I've heard a joke that people say that the doors of Hillsong, that's that group, the doors of Hillsong... Say uh, the front doors might be this big, but the back doors are about that big because a lot leave. So they come looking for something, hopefully to get, you know, like a 
lotto ticket being done or get make some money or have happiness or whatever they want. But then when they don't get it, then they leave in droves. So they have a very big turnover at that church. Turnover means a lot of people. Like new people, then old ones go, the new ones come, and no ones go, things like that. So people are looking for something. Another reason why people want to believe that God exists is because they're scared of death. They're not sure about what happens in the next life. They're scared of hell. They're uncertain. And therefore, for them, it's convenient for a God or gods to exist because by believing, they think, in, in that God, they'll go to a better place in the next life. And some of these people are sincere. I'm not putting down the people here. I'm, you know, this will apply, as you'll notice, to even some of us. For example, when a loved one dies, as I mentioned last time in the talk or the one before, when a loved one dies, the social workers at the hospital try to console that person or if they need, they go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist to console the person who's just lost their husband or their wife or their child. And as Elder Baisio said, that what can they do? What can they really give them? They're not allowed to talk about religion, supposedly. These social workers, these psychologists, they can't speak about religion. Even if they believe themselves, they still can't speak about it. So, and even if they did, what would they tell them? How much do they really know themselves about what happens in the next life? But for people who had nothing to do with religion sometimes, have nothing to do with God... don't even think about the next life, they begin to think about it when someone's passed away or if they're going to pass away. Let's look at the ones who, if someone's going to pass away or someone, sorry, someone has passed away, someone that they really love, they begin to say, well, what happened? Where's he gone? Where's she gone? Has it all stopped here? Sometimes when, when death comes into someone's life, death of someone close to them, that makes them search these are some of the arguments that the atheists use against people who believe. They say, oh, it's just because they need to believe or it's an advantage for them. to." Like a lot of these things that I'm saying, that's some of the arguments that atheists say against those who believe. And I have to say that a lot of their arguments are correct. Now, you might say, does that mean you're an atheist? Well, I don't think so. But you will see why I'm saying they're correct. We've got to, we can't ignore what everyone says. Are they atheists? They've got some points. And the reason why they've got some points is because they notice things that with people who believe, which I'll go on, and you'll see that they've got some very good points. Family reasons is another reason why people believe or go to church or whatever. It's tradition. They belong to, if they're Russian... They're going to become. They're going to go Russian Orthodox. If they're Greek, Greek Orthodox. If they're Serbian, Serbian Orthodox. If they're Croatian, they're going to go to the Catholic Church. Some are some are brought up in the in the Muslim faith, so they're going to. They, you know, it's just unheard. Some, of course, if they if they wanted to change, they could be killed. Some people go to church, or they believe that they have to, they have to believe in God because they've been brainwashed. What do I mean by brainwashed? They could be brainwashed by even their own parents. So parents who had a distorted view of, I don't know, they had some view of religion, whatever they had, 
once had distorted, had a view about religion or believed and would talk to their children from young about it and then those children feel that if they do something wrong then God will punish them if that's what they've been told or they're not going to go to paradise or they're going to go to hell. So when children are young, whatever you tell them, it sticks. Now you might say, does that mean that we shouldn't talk about religion? I'm not saying that you don't talk to children about religion. I'm saying whether it's done in the right way or the wrong way, whatever you speak to children when they're young, it stays in their brain. And all of you who are adults now know that there are many things that your parents told you that you will remember. It's imprinted. So a lot of people just feel that they have to because that's the way they've been brought up. And some have been brainwashed, by the way. Some have been really, um, like you see those um, religions uh, where, you know, you see them how they teach their children, they go up and down and they're really like in a trance, so they've been taught and they believe that there's nothing wrong with killing people in the name of their religion. Uh, they've been brainwashed. So do Orthodox people brainwash their children? The answer, of course, is yes. If it's done in the wrong way, you can be brainwashing your children. You think your child's religious, but it's not. But we'll come to that later on. Some people come to the church, as I said, to find a spouse. Some social status. You know, it's good to be a, a, a church person. It gives you some type of credibility for some. Oh, he's a church person. Some, of course, people make fun, but some people are impressed as well. That means, you're a good per that, that means that that person's a good person or an honest person. When I go places to buy something, whatever, a lot of people, salesmen, they'll, or salesmen, they'll say, um, oh, I go to church. So in other words, I have to trust them because they go to church. Some, as I said, um, in America there was actually, this is a very extreme case, but there was a serial killer there. Who, who termed himself BTK, which is, anyway, tortures and kills and binds and things like that. He was like a, a madman, and he terrorised the community there for many, many years. And they couldn't find him, the police, until they finally found him many years later. And what was he? He was a family man, and he was part of a church, and I think he was part of a, like a high position in the church, not a cleric, but... Whoever thought he was doing those things? So that's to the extreme. And you say, what are you saying that we're serial killers? No, but we've got to be careful that we're not using our religion as a way to give us some type of credibility or some type of thing where um, we know we're doing bad, but we want to kind of have that thing that people don't know about it, so we disguise that we're in the church or religious or whatever. So some people come to church financial convenience. What does that mean? Well, some people can have financial convenience in that the church can help them in their times of their, you know, difficulties. Uh, some have loose fingers and they come, they come to church because they can, um, you know, get those five-finger discounts, as we say. And that's the fact that some people do, do that. Judas, the apostle, joined the 12 apostles he became a disciple of Christ just because he knew that they had the money box. He knew they had a box which people used to donate and he wanted to become an apostle and he kind of worked his way around to become in charge of that box and when he became in charge of that box, he was stealing from the box. And Christ as God knew 
but he allowed it to continue on, waiting for his repentance. And as I said last time, there was a lot of chances that Christ gave him, washed his feet, etc., etc., to try and bring him to repentance. So, or because some people have arguments, oh, I know that someone is stealing from the church or someone's doing bad, whatever. It doesn't mean that the church crumbles. Uh, some people have a low self-esteem and they come to the church or they, they believe uh, somehow to build up their self-esteem and they get positions, power, importance. They can become even committee members, chanters, clergy, readers, etc., and you say, well, is that bad for someone to become like that? And the answer is, if it's to build up your self-esteem, just because you have low self-esteem, then yes, it's bad. And, you know, uh, I will have to say that there are, there are people who, in the outside world, let's just say of a world outside of a church or a religious group, they wouldn't make it in the way that they want. They want to be popular. They want to be noticed. They want to be... Uh, they want to have power. And where do you get that? A lot of people will never get that in a lifetime in the world, one can say. But all they've got to do today, because there's such a lack of uh, priests in all the churches, whether Catholic, Protestants, whatever... A person goes up to the bishop or whoever's in charge and says, I want to become a priest, and the, you know, the, a lot of bishops, not all of them, but a lot of them, their eyes open up, and they're so excited because someone wants to become a priest and make them quite quickly without even examining them, without even seeing why does this person want to become a priest. When I was in Greece many years ago, I was in a monastery, and this priest came in, married priest, and I found out that he was, I've said this story before, and I found out he was just ordained. And um, I wasn't a priest then myself, but I, I just asked him, I go, okay, so some of the conversation got on to his spiritual father, etc. He didn't know what I was talking about. I go, so your spiritual father, and he, he was looking at me like dazed. And then he told me the story how it just came to him one day that he wanted to become a priest. So he goes to the bishop. This is very extreme, but don't be surprised. So he went to the bishop on Thursday, and he goes, I'm interested in becoming a priest. And this particular bishop had this mania, one can say, of ordaining. He just loved ordaining. He wanted to have a lot of clergy. I don't know what was his problem. And he actually uh, said to him, OK, Saturday he was made deacon. Sunday he was made a priest the man had never even confessed in his whole life. Didn't even know what confession is. That's extreme, but it occurs. Now, last week, one person said to me, oh, you spoke a little bit too much about some scandals in the church, and by doing that, you turn people off. You turn people off. And I said to him, no, actually, on the contrary, when we're not honest about what's happening and we insult people's intelligence by saying to them, oh, no, no, that's your imagination, that's not true, 
You make those people become suspicious. You make them angry. You make them actually leave the church a lot of times because they can't handle it. Not because they're looking for an excuse to leave, but they are actually have a righteous type of... Some people have a righteous type of anger. They go, well, why, why are they doing those things in the church or why is that happening over there? Why are they having barbecues during Lent? Or why are they doing that which is against the canons? Or why is that happening? So if you, if you just pretend it doesn't happen or it's not happening and you try and, and, and make the person believe it's, not even, it's his imagination even, then you're, you're causing more trouble. Now, last time I mentioned about the wedding that was at some church around here, a wedding, and it was the most scandalous wedding. The woman came in with a miniskirt and like into an orthodox church, and it was like a scandal, and then this person said to me, oh, you shouldn't bring that up. I go, why? Most, most people saw it on television. If we don't speak about it, well, what's the people going to think? And I always say to the people who are religious, the people who are spiritual in some sense, how many apostles did Christ have? Twelve. And how many were rotten? One. And did Christ dismantle everything? Was everything dissolved? He goes, no. I go, what does St John Christum say? Even if the priest is the worst priest, if he's got the ordination, he hasn't been defrocked, he, the mysteries still work. As time goes on, we will look more closely at these things, but I have been slowly, slowly... Like last week or last month, I told you that, um, you know, today it's become so difficult for priests. I actually said that to you. Don't judge all of them. It's so difficult. Like today, people have become so proud, so egotistical, that you can't tell them anything. You can't even baptise a child in the correct way because, as I said... That's why some people say, oh, I went to this church and the priest just put the water like that on top. They didn't put it right in the water three times like St. Cosmas. Put the there. Like St. Cosmas, whose um, memory we celebrate today, said th three full immersions. And that's not done. And people go, why? 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 What, what, what's happening? And I said, well, a lot of times people don't want their children put under the water. They complain. And then if it does a little bit of a cough or a little bit of saliva comes out, it's like they're ripping their clothes and saying, what more do we need? He's, a, he's the worst priest. People are even suing priests now. So you've got to be understanding to some level. Does it mean that they shouldn't do the three immersions? Well, how would I get around it? I don't know, because I'm not, I'm not in a parish. If I was a parish priest and I had... Uh, five, six baptisms every weekend, like in some churches, and another ten weddings. I don't know how I would do it. I don't think I would. What happens to the other priests? Can they leave? Are they monastics? They're married priests. So you have to be understanding and not be fully judged. There are some priests who are completely scandalous. That's a different thing. Be careful that we're not judging ones that are kind of pained about what's happening but they kind of have to compromise and we are there others who don't care at all and because you people are kind of new to the some of you are new or you don't understand or the spiritual levels not good not 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 at a very good level it's better to kind of leave it alone until you develop more
because you could end up judging something that's completely wrong. So yes, people do use the church for positions, etc., because they've got a low self-esteem. All you to do today is put the black on, and then all of a sudden, a person that was nothing in his mind, a person who was ignored, a person who was using modern terms a loser, one can say, all of a sudden, people are respecting that person and kissing their hand, etc., etc. So does that mean that people would actually go to the level of becoming a priest to obtain that? And the answer is yes. If I said to you no, then if you walked out, I would understand because you would have to say that's hypocritical. But the, look, the point is, it's true. Who it is and who's not, it's not for our business. It happens, and, um, and God knows it happens. Some of them change, actually, later on. There is another reason why people become religious. They feel vulnerable. They feel insecure. They have like psychological uh, needs for a God who will take care of them, as I said before, like a belief in a higher being or something like makes them just feel good. You even hear some movie stars or some even some people that are singers and all that go, oh, I, I believe in God. It works for me. You know, it works for me. I feel really good about it. I've got my faith. And they say um, that it works for them or it makes them feel good. It gives them peace. It soothes their conscience for some. Now, should we ask the question, what's wrong with someone wanting to find peace? What's wrong with someone wanting to soothe their conscience? Isn't that what religion's about? Many of these people are sincere too. Or many of them just want that aspect of it. I go, I go to church sometimes, I light a candle, and I feel really good for the day. Do you go to church any other day? No. Do you read the Bible? Some will say, no. I just go and do my, my own prayer, or whatever they say. There are others who believe that we need to believe in God, in a God of justice, one who will judge all mankind so that the unjust will be punished. You know, some people say to me, oh, this person robbed me, and he gets away with it, and he's robbed others, and he gets away with it. And the only way that they can be satisfied because they're so angry, they're so upset that they were ripped off, one can say there's one way. They either go and kill the person, right, which then they've got, they've got their conscience to burden them, or they say, then God will fix that up. God's judgment will repay him. And they say, oh, I wish him to go to hell. They're satisfied with that. So... Hell has to ex If hell exists, it means it exists because God exists. So it's an advantage for some people who have that for God to exist. And for there to be justice after death, it means there has to be a next life. So a lot of those people then do believe in the next life. How about us now? How about Orthodox Christians? Now comes the ouch. But um, not, not that I'm, I'm doing that on purpose. But just Listen. Orthodox Christians are very similar to what we just read now. But we've got a little bit more of a kind of um, icing to, our, to the way that it's done, which is that these Orthodox Christians pray to God 
have priests say prayers for them, have their homes blessed with holy water, have services done like paraklesis like we do here, uh, malebans, as they say in, in the Russian church, anointed with blessed oil from the icons or unction oil like we're going to do in December, God willing. And uh, also Orthodox Christians want God to help them enjoy life, be protected in this life. Again, some of you say, well, what's wrong with that? Another reason why some people, the Orthodox Christians, believe is because they're also scared of death. Same thing, scared of hell, scared of death. So they kind of lead a religious life just so they won't go to hell. And many of the fathers say, not very fruitful. People who just believe because they don't want to go to hell. I mean, it's, it's a certain level, but it's a lower level. In the beginning, that can be at least a start. These Orthodox Christians are really not much different from the others that we said. Pretty much they do the same thing. Now I'll give you the orange example. I'll call it the orange example. A lot of people ask for prayers. They could be asking for prayers because their children are sick. They could ask for prayers because they're going for a job interview. They could be asking for prayers because they are going to do an exam. They could be asking for prayers because they're going to sell their house and they want to get a good price. You know, there's a lot of reasons why people ask for prayers. And to me, I, say, I always say, you know, like, it's like you're, you're coming to me and putting oranges in front of me. Do you understand what the oranges mean? The oranges in front of the Buddhas and things like that, as you see in the shops that we sometimes notice. And we see these, like, oranges there, and there's a whole bunch of oranges. And I say, it doesn't mean that I'm actually a Buddha for you to come and bring um, uh, oranges... And then some of you might say, well, that, does that mean we shouldn't ask the priest for prayers? Yes, but it's not enough just that. In the beginning, in the beginning, when people come to me have no idea of the church, I hope that what they ask for, they get, if it's God's will. I hope that they do get it. I hope that they get what they... And many of them do. Why? Because they don't know much. And through, like we see the example of the, the life of Christ where he did miracles and then people began to flock more to him through the miracles and then they began to become more open for him to teach them. The Samaritan woman, that Christ said that you've got more than one husband, you've had so many husbands. And then she was quite surprised and then she started asking him spiritual questions because she was surprised that he knew her life. And we saw from the life of Elder Pais, Elder Porfirios, how many times God enlightened them to know things about people, miracles occurred. And that happens a lot to bring people close to God. There's nothing wrong with that. But when people have been in the church for years and years and years, and that's all they do, then one has to wonder that that person has pretty much lost the mark. There's something else. It's not enough just to do that. Even just to go to church, even to commune. There's something else, which is what I'm trying to come to today in this talk. The amount of oranges I've had, I could have had the biggest orange juice factory, I think, in Australia. But... That is not what orthodoxy is really about. 
I had a person once who actually came to me because he wanted to get married. And he says, oh, I want to get married, I want to get married, I want to get married, I want to get married. And finally he got married. And after that, he left. People use the church. People use God. And I see it continually, like the one I said to you years ago, this woman telephoned from another state and said, oh, you know, my son's on um, heroin. He was an addict. And she was begging and saying, please, 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 please. This happens a lot. You can, all priests know examples of this. And um, they said, please, you know, commemorate, commemorate, commemorate. So the monastery commemorated. And then after a while, uh, he got better. He stopped. He got off. Went to a program, got cleansed. It was, was um, kicked the, the habit. And after that, the woman basically stopped contact because she got what she wanted. As I said, I don't mind. The, the priests shouldn't mind to do prayers and help people, especially if people aren't really close to God, if they're not really close to the church. People that can't have children, they're kind of there, then there, but they're not there, kind of. They, they come and they say, oh, can you please do some prayers? So they go to a priest, the, prayers, the priest does some prayers, then they get pregnant. That's done for a reason. While someone else who's been in the church for many years comes to the priest and says, can, we can't have children, can you help us? The priest does prayers, it doesn't work. Why? Different. Sometimes, see, those people have been in the church for longer, and God has already brought them close to him and he's teaching them something different. Or there's other people because they're new. New people, people that are uh, fresh, as we say, a lot of miracles occur, a lot of signs occur, a lot of great things occur and it's all done like exactly it was happened in the Gospels where Christ did miracles and all these things happen and then later on it's time to start with the sufferings, etc., which will come to that later on. Now, but among all these religious people, whether non-Orthodox or Orthodox, the writer, this particular theologian, Father John Romanidis, which is a uh, very famous theologian, he actually says, do they really desire God? Are they really seeking him? Or they only want him because they want their favours done. If people could work out another way of getting what they want, would they really even believe? Some people, uh, for example, it says here, I, I actually did a whole list here. Rich people, in general, do find it hard to have a desire for God. In, in general, because they've already they've got so much. Poor people, they actually might go to church more because they want to become rich. Some people think that some social system or some political system is an answer. So, for example, someone can believe in God, be religious like they were in Russia to a certain level, then all of a sudden Lenin comes along and says that I'm going to work out all your problems to do with food, and I'm going to help you um, uh, financially. 
And a lot of the people left the church because those people were going to the church because of benefits which he said that he's going to give them now. And a lot of them left. Some of them, of course, were forced to leave, but a lot of them left freely. And they burnt their icons in bonfires freely. And today we see the same thing. Once some people get involved with drugs, then all of a sudden God doesn't matter anymore because they found a new type of way of giving them peace or whatever else they were after from their previous God. Some find it in sex. Some relationships, for example. A person could believe and all of a sudden they find someone who comes along who doesn't believe or is not really that caring about things. But because this person has so much love for this other person, they just say, oh, I don't want to lose her or him, and they freely leave and don't go to church or don't believe anymore, don't care. Now, I'll give you an example, which I've, which I've mentioned a long time ago, but it was, to me, it's a very, like, even I, I don't get shocked very easily, but this one actually shocked me. When I was a lay person, I used to go to church often. I used to go to... Um, the vigils in the night time and things like that. And I used to notice the same type of people used to go usually, which isn't many. And uh, there was a woman there who I used to see often going to these vigils, you know, and she looked very spiritual, one can say, and she was praying and all these things. And suddenly I never saw her anymore. Actually, I didn't see her for years. I, didn't, I wondered what happened, but I knew that she worked in a certain uh, shop near where I lived. So when I would walk past, I would sometimes look at the shop, hoping to see her to say, well, you know, you're all right, what happened, or whatever. And then finally, after a very long time, I saw her. She said hello, and I go, I haven't seen you for a while. And she goes, yeah, I go, anything happened? Like, did you get sick? She goes, no. And then she was, like, staring at me, and she said, um, I got married. I said, okay. And then she was looking at me again, and she goes, to a Muslim. And I said, oh, right. So um, then I realised that all her fervent faith, whatever she had, maybe she was going to church because she was looking for a husband. I don't know. Maybe. But the point is that when this person came along, then religion was of no importance to her anymore and she became a Muslim. Well, and I don't even believe that she even became a religious Muslim. I think because some Muslims don't believe, so some Orthodox don't believe. So it doesn't mean that because you marry someone that you're going to become religious like their religion. It's all finished. And we see those examples a lot. Some people, I've noticed that you see them come to church, even here, and then you don't see them anymore. And you go, what happened? They go, oh, I'm really busy, you know, I've got a new job and I'm really high now in this position. And so they haven't got time. They might have been interested before, maybe even reading books, coming to services, but then slowly, slowly, they're not interested because they found something else to replace whatever need they had without coming in the first place. Some believe science is the answer. But those atheists, they go, science will give all the answers. I don't know how they're going to give the answers for when the person dies, but some people are so oblivious to that or they don't want to think about it. They go that science will give all the answers to what's necessary for man to live here on earth. Now, others believe in the E.T. syndrome. E.T., the extraterrestrial creatures or whatever they think. 
They think that the earth's problems will be solved because someone's going to come in a flying saucer or whatever and, and take them away. Some people actually um, wait. I knew a fellow who said to me, used to go out every night and used to speak in the, in, in, into the sky and speak to these creatures that he thought to come and get him, right, and take him away to some other type of existence. And some people are religious, but they kind of believe, but then they believe in this other thing that someone's going to come and, or they're, they're going to come here with their spaceships and set up shop and make a new earth and something better. So religious, suddenly, they don't even, they, because well, how can we um, think that there's um, other life on other planets? God became man, Christ, and he was crucified on earth for the sins of everyone, not went to other planets and was crucified again and again and again on different planets. Some people can believe and then suddenly they get involved in some sport, either as athletes or get into it, that's it. They're not interested much anymore. Sport is the answer. Others, it could be beauty, meaning that they weren't very nice looking and they go and get their faces completely remodelled like they do today with all these operations. A new nose, new cheeks, a new chin, a new head. And, um, <laughs> and suddenly they've got the beauty that they never had before and they're noticed... So why go to church? I'm not implying that only ugly people come to church, but I'm saying that some of these people want that. And power, I've said that's success. Some people live in psychology. Some people just go into their own fantasy land and make up their own, their own happiness in their fantasy. They just put in the computer and you make up your own little scenarios and then you get this virtual reality and they make up, I don't know what they're making up there. Some become environmentalists and they think that's the answer. Don't worry about God anymore. Don't worry about with the environment. Not that the church is against the environment, but that's what they they really put their their the whole being into the environment. And that's going to be the answer. And then they do that for a while, and then they give that up, and then go to some other thing. Some it could be save the whale, but they go with, they go on boats and try and stop the Japanese killing the whales and throw rotten butter on their Japanese boats, and it smells and all these throwing things at each other as if it's school kids and things like that. Um, some it's the animal rights. Some believe in self-help groups. So there was a fellow who went to a psychologist, for example, a religious person. He was actually a really religious person, and he went to a psychologist. And the psychologist and I said to him, "But why? You, why do you have to go there? For it's not as if you're like really sick person. I mean, some people, as we said last time, these people have their place, as the elders say, especially if someone's really not well." But some people, like him, I said, why are you going there for? He goes, oh, he helps me. Go, how does he help you? Oh, he teaches me techniques. So what techniques is he? He's teaching me how to plan my day. How to plan your day. Okay. Why is that? So, and I knew this. I said, so for you, your, the fact that you're disorganised was a really big heavy, it was very heavy for you. He said, yes. I said, and people you felt were looking at you, that you were disorganised, used to judge you. He goes, yes. And now I've learned to be organised. 
In other words, I said, so you can get back at the others for putting you down in the first place. So in other words, he had in his mind, his whole thing was not to be judged by others because of whatever reason that, for social reasons or for, in his case, it's his disorganisation. So he let, let his faith go to the side so that he can now become this organised creature who will uh, be able to walk around with his head up high because now he's organised, while before he used to walk with his head down because he was embarrassed. Healthy people as well. When you're really healthy, a lot of times there's no need to be really faithful because you're healthy. I'm quite a sick person, but I, I have noticed that sometimes I can get a little bit better. And I've noticed that my mind becomes different, like I, I kind of lose my faith to some degree. Now, some of you might say, oh, does that mean we stay sick? It doesn't mean that. I'm just trying to say that uh, even the saints would say that um, when someone is excessively healthy, they can become proud. And pride makes you to forget about God. And that's what fasting has the purpose of doing. It helps to humble the body which will come later on to that. So those who are non-Orthodox or those who just believe in God, why they believe in God, how Orthodox people are basically quite similar, how are we different or how should we be different? Because I'm saying that those things that, those, that people believe in and things like that is not really the full truth of how someone should be. And I do believe that the majority of Orthodox Christians are pretty much the same. So how then does one become what's called an Orthodox Christian in the true sense? What is a true Orthodox Christian? Now, some believe it might be if you follow the old calendar. There are people out there who actually say to be a true Orthodox Christian, you have to follow the old calendar. Some say to be a true Orthodox Christian, you can't belong to a church which is involved with ecumenism. But these people who say these things rarely speak about something else. See, they speak about what's called orthodoxia, orthodoxy, which is the correct faith, correct worship, the correct dogmas. But they don't speak about the other thing which we say in Greek, orthopraxia, which I think they've made into an English word as well, Orthopraxia means the correct life. It's not enough just to say I'm orthodox because I go to the orthodox church or because I do my cross with three fingers or because I believe in the dogmas of the orthodox church. It's actually not enough just to believe in the dogmas of the orthodox church. So what happened why has this problem occurred in the Orthodox Church that we've actually become more like Protestants than Orthodox? And the reason is as follows. A bit of history. Greece was freed from the Turks in 1821, nearly 200 years ago. It's a little bit under 200 years ago. When Greece was freed, 
The politicians of that time who were forming the new state of Greece wanted to be like Europe. They wanted Greece politically to be like Europe, but also they wanted Greece in a religious way to be like Europe, especially to be like the Protestants. These politicians despised one aspect of orthodoxy which really bothered them, and that aspect was the monastic tradition of the Orthodox Church. In other words, they hated and they, they really wanted to get rid of it, the asceticism of the church. Peter the Great did the same in Russia. He wanted to westernise Russia, so he uh, worked on that and he also wanted to eliminate from the Russian church what we call the backbone. Like if I've got no backbone, I'm going to collapse. For human beings to stand, we need the backbone. For orthodoxy to stand, it needs the backbone. And the backbone of orthodoxy is its monastic tradition. It's the life of that's the, the struggle of with the fasting and the prayer and the and the cleansing of passions and all these things. Protestants don't talk about that stuff. So these politicians, or the czar, whatever, they wanted to get rid of it badly. On the other side, the Catholics want to convert Orthodox, the Orthodox churches to um to, to Catholicism. And they themselves, they, they know, their theologians have said, we have no chance of converting the Orthodox to Catholicism as long as they have those teachings to do with the monastic tradition, the deep inner spiritual life. While that's there, we've got no chance of converting them. So there's always been moves against the Orthodox Church to eradicate that, to get rid of it. This spiritual life. What is this tradition? It's to do with the healing of passions, spiritual, the struggle, the cleansing of the soul, becoming holy, fasting, the Jesus prayer, etc., etc. Your thoughts. Do you hear the Protestants speak about those things? No. The Orthodox Church is the only church which refers to Christ as physician. The Orthodox Church is the only church which refers to Christ, as we heard in the prayers today, as physician of souls and bodies, as a doctor. Catholics don't mention that. Protestants don't mention that. So what's this thing that Christ is the physician, the healer of our souls and bodies? A lot of us, as we said before, like that orange example that I gave, is people come to get better for sicknesses, for physical sicknesses. But my objection is that no one comes to ask for healing of their spiritual sicknesses. Last time when, when I was here, when, when we did the Paraclysis, the Mother of God, there were some parts I wanted to read to you, which a lot of times we hear it, but we ignore it. 
or we just pass by it for some reason, I don't know. And it's actually quite wrong because this is the meaning of what is orthodoxy. In the Paracrisis, the mother of God, there's a one part there which says, diseased is my body and my soul. So in this Paracrisis where we're praying to the mother of God, uh, the, the person who wrote it actually says that the body's diseased but so is the soul. Another part, it's written, with most grievous diseases and with corrupt passions too. Corrupt passions. Protestants don't really refer to passions. See, because once they believe in Christ, they're already saved. That's it. They're saved. While in the Catholic Church, how do you get saved? So in the Protestant Church, you have to believe in Christ to get saved, and that's it. In the Catholic Church, you have to believe in the Pope, and then you're saved. <laughs> heal me, and another part says, heal me, O pure one, of the sickness which the passions bring. So here, it's saying that our sickness of soul comes because of our passions, because of our pride, because of our anger, because of our filthy thoughts, because of our jealousy, because of our hate, because of our revenge, because of our greed, because of our laziness. All these things are passions. That's what makes our soul sick. All the diseases, another part, all the diseases that plague my soul, do they make well, and the sufferings of the flesh heal also. We are praying and saying that uh, for the mother of God to help us of our diseases of the soul. And this one here, which is one of the one I, I really like a lot, it says, which is at the end of the paraclesis, from, uh, from the great abundance of all my sins, because of the many sins that I have, ill am I in body. In other words, what Christ said, sin no more, when the person was, was sick, the paralytic, sin no more or worse will happen to you. So we know that sins cause physical sickness. Let's read it again. From the great abundance of all my sins, ill am I in body, sick also am I in soul. So in other words, our souls become sick because of our sins. Thee have I as refuge, do thou therefore help me, O hope of all the hopeless, for thou art full of grace. In the Orthodox Church today, Christians no longer think that a Christian way of life involves the sickness of their souls and the healing thereof. We don't hear that anymore. Even when you hear a sermon a lot of times, it's very moralistic. I don't know what the word is. It's like just morals. Be good. Don't kill. Don't do abortions. Sorry, I don't mention that anymore. I think it's people get too offended. Don't kill. And then they might say, don't do adultery. No, I forgot that. I mentioned that ever because people will get offended with that as well. So it's like, what is mentioned? Basically, to be good Christians, to be good people. Now, some of you might say, but isn't that the purpose? No, it's not the purpose. To be good Christians, like the good Protestants. Now, some of you are getting a bit confused, but as time goes on, we, I will more and more explain what, what I'm trying to say. Actually, the Protestants are very surprised when they hear that the Orthodox call Christ a physician, a doctor. 
they are surprised when they hear the following, which is very important, that orthodoxy is not a religion. We don't like to call ourselves a religion. We like to say that orthodoxy, ready, is a therapeutic course of treatment that heals the soul, that heals the human personality. In other words, that orthodoxy is a treatment that when one is orthodox, they have at their availability there this course of treatment not to become good people. What's good? Only God is good, is truly good, as he himself said to the man that came and says that in the Yom Bible. So only in the Orthodox Church does one hear that not only the body is sick, but the soul is sick as well. God loves, let's now let's have a little bit of a thing here. God loves not only the saints. See, this is this is what I'm trying to say that God, see people think, see, it's like a Protestant type of thing where you know that God loves, loves you when you're good. God loves not only the saints, but all people, without exception, including sinners. He loves those who are in hell and even the devil, right? The saints. And he desires to save and heal everyone. Save, sorry, it should be the other way around. He desires to heal and save, because from healing you are saved, everyone. He wants to heal everyone, but he can't if the person doesn't want. In the case of the devil, we've been told by the teachers of the Flux Church that if the devil were to repent now, that God would accept his repentance and forgive him. But he doesn't repent because of his pride. He can't. A saint said to the devil, say, holy God. And the devil said, holy God. And the saint said to him, because sometimes the devil used to appear to the saints, uh, say, holy mighty. Holy mighty. Yeah, he, he repeated. Say, holy immortal. And the devil said, holy immortal. Say, have mercy on me. And it, I can't, he said. I can't say that. I will not say that. Some people say, oh, it's so good, I believe in God. But saying one of the apostles there says, so what? Even the devil believes in God. And he trembles. The devil knows that God exists. But the only thing that he can't do is he can't ask for mercy. This is the essence. He burns when he, to ask for mercy. He won't do it. And when he hears others asking for mercy, it kills him. Doesn't like it. We are starting to come now to the essence. So how are we not to be demonic in nature like to become similar to the evil spirits what makes us different to the evil spirits what makes us to be truly orthodox the particular words have mercy on me in other words lord jesus christ have mercy on me in greek kyrie Isu Christe eleison me. Five words. 
I've heard some theologians say, St. Paul says, I'd rather say five words of benefit rather than say thousands of words. And so we'll say, it's interesting that St. Paul uses, he said five words, which is exactly what it is in Greek, as the New Testament was written in Greek. Kyrie, which is Lord, Kyrie, Su, Christe, Eleison, which is one word, Me. So these words are important. And now we're coming to the essence of the Orthodox faith. As I said before, a lot of the Protestants and a lot of Orthodox, even if they say Kyrie Eleison, Gospel Dominion, whatever they say in the church, Lord have mercy, it's not enough just to say it. There has to be something from within. Healing was the mission of the early church. The purpose of the church was to heal souls. While today, this theologian says, much of the missionary effort consists of advertising our beautiful beliefs and traditional form of worship and say, oh, look, you know, we've got beautiful beliefs. Some even say we've got the truth. Our worship, our services are ancient and beautiful. We have beautiful um, chanting, beautiful vestments. The atheists actually say that, in their opinion, a lot of the religious people are superstitious. And this particular theologian, Father John Romanidis actually says that a lot of people live actually similar, which is lead superstitious lives. Not really Christian orthodox lives, but superstitious lives. I'll put a cross on my car to protect me, as if the, that in and of itself is going to protect. I'll call the priest to do a holy water service. They say that's all superstition. Not that the holy water service is superstition, but the way people approach it is superstitious. He said here, for orthodoxy today, repentance is basically the acceptance of Christ. When, someone, when you hear someone say, oh, did you hear he became orthodox? Or did you hear that that person became, um, he, was, he was born orthodox, but he's changed because now he accepts Christ? Very similar to what the Protestants say when Billy Graham came. Do you accept Christ? And that acceptance of Christ is what they believe made them Christian. And today, that Protestant type of spirit is in the Orthodox Church, which is that you accept Christ into your life, that you therefore then are Orthodox. And because we accept him, we go to church, we light a candle, and we become good little boys and girls or good people. If we are young, we go to Sunday schools. If we are religious, we come to religious groups, maybe some of you here, and supposedly we are living in repentance. See, for the Protestants, repentance is once. I was away from Christ, now I accept him, and that's it. That's the end of their repentance. They're saved. Orthodox today, unfortunately, a lot of people are the same. They come to the church... They say that they confess or they change or things like that and they repent for what they've done in the past, like the Protestants do. 
then they become orthodox. Full stop. That's it. And they're saved. If we have done something bad in our life, we show some regret, ask forgiveness, some people even confess a little bit there, and that from that we believe that we are doing repentance, that we are living a repentant life. So the church, in a lot of ways, has fallen to the level of just moralism, another word, pietism. What's moralism? Morals. As I said before, to be good, help the poor, that's moral. Don't kill, that's moral. Some people will say, you know, don't cheat on your husband or wife, that's moral. Don't steal, that's moral. Now some of you will say, well, what's wrong with that? But orthodoxy is not, is not a church of morals. But isn't that what the commandments are? Yes. So what's wrong with the church to be moral? And the answer is the following. Morals are a certain level. But a person, as long as they're doing those things, no one says you have to be humble. You have to be repentant. You have to ha not have within yourself thoughts of evil, not to have filthy thoughts. See, the, when, when we speak about morals, we don't speak about those things. We only speak about the main things. You don't do an abortion for that. For some people, that, that, even that's not a sin anymore. But don't do this, don't do that. That's the morals. But when, within orthodoxy, that's not enough. In the Old Testament... Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not this, thou shalt not that. Morals. But when Christ says, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you have committed lust within your heart. We're going now into the inner life, looking more deeply at the soul. Christ was doing that. He spoke about hypocrisy. See, morals by themselves are worthless without the spiritual struggle, without the inner life. So Christ, he spoke about Phariseeism, that hypocrisy, looking within our souls for all the evil that's in us. That's why I'm saying that morals in and of itself are not right and they actually destroy the true meaning of the church. It actually confuses everything. And there's another thing which is called pietism, not piety, pietism. F. Sevismos, I think that's how I said in Greek. What is this pietism? Pietism came about in the Orthodox Church after, as I said, the revolution. When these politicians wanted to make Greece Protestant, actually the first king of Greece, I think, was Protestant, by the way, and he, he persecuted the church, he shut down monasteries. And as we know from Russia, Peter the Great and all them, Catherine, one of their biggest obsessions that they had was to destroy monasticism. They persecuted many monastics in Russia as well. The devil hates most of all monastics. It says, this is what the fathers say, for a lay person, for a lay person, there might be one devil on their back bothering them, trying to make them sin. But for a monastic, there's a hundred. That's how much he hates them. Why? Because the monastics uh, have, have teach practice some less, some more, the true orthodox life. 
except for one difference. Because, see, spiritual life's no difference between people that are married or people in the world and monastics. There's no real difference except for one, and we know what that is. Married people are allowed to have uh, sexual intercourse. Monastics are not. That's the only difference. The rest is to do God's commandments. Monastics have to struggle to do God's commandments, and lay people have to do God's commandments. There's no difference except for that one aspect. Pietism is exactly that, is people who have this look about them that they're pious and they do little things like they venerate the icons properly, they'll do their cross properly, they'll practice certain spiritual rituals like the Pharisees did of old. You know, the Pharisees, they really were proud that they did everything perfect. But what did Christ say? But how about justice and love and mercy? How about the inside? How about the true aspect of being children of God? Not that we ignore all those things, but that's not just it. And that's what pietism is. And because these people, these politicians brought Protestantism into the Orthodox Church, into Greece, they actually brought in from, from Germany, for example, Protestant books and translated them into Greek. And a lot of people, that's all they read. And a lot of those books, all it said was, you know, to be good people because you believe in Christ. And therefore that spirit penetrated within the Orthodox Church badly for many, for, for many decades. Now, some of you might say, I always thought that that's really, you know, like people that do externals and we don't want to be like the Pharisees. You know, we come to church with a scarf on or we wear you know, proper dresses or clothes or um, all these practices, what we call the externals. And it's like, oh, we don't need any of them. The inner life is what's important. Some people actually say that. But the answer is no, because Christ said you should have done the bigger things without ignoring the smaller things. Because the Jews used to give, it was a commandment that they give one-tenth of whatever they had to the temple, to the clergy, one-tenth. And the Pharisees went as far as to demand that they even give their parsleys, their coming as it's called, like even their, their parsley, one-tenth even of that. That's what Christ said, you tithe, you give one-tenth even to the level of the, the maidanois we say in Greek, the parsley. Because that was the commandment of Moses. And Christ didn't want to show that he's against Moses' commandments but he wanted to show that there's things more important than that, which they weren't doing. They were just into their rituals, into their externals, looking good, standing in church, praying so everyone can see them, but didn't care about love, forgiveness, mercy, justice. That was not part of the thing. And Christ said, you should have done the big ones without ignoring the small ones. Now we come to this point, which is, that the externals are also important and don't let people tell you that they're not. Some people say, oh, so is orthodoxy, so is that, does that mean that you know, you're better because you wear a scarf or because you don't wear makeup? 
or because a woman doesn't wear pants, or because you don't do all these other little things that, that, that we're supposed to do. And the answer is, all those things help. But when you believe it's just that, and you forget about other things, then yes, that's a disease. That's then what's called pietism. That's what's called Phariseeism. For example, I'll say some things now. Uh, men should not come to church, whether summer or winter, with short sleeves. It's impious. It's, it's not pious. It's not proper. Women should not come to church with pants. Now, most of you, which is good, you don't. And it's very good because when people accidentally come with pants and they see that not, the women not wearing the pants, then they kind of get embarrassed and the next time they come, they wear dresses. See, without me having to go up and saying to them, you should not wear pants and then, you know, I'm causing all trouble. Women should not wear makeup to me at all, but anyway, and venerate icons and put lipstick all over my hand and on the cross. It's not right. Oh, so is orthodoxy to do with crayon? Does it really matter? All these little things help. All these things help. And don't ignore them because you will miss out because that really, when God sees those type of things, he gives more grace. If you remember when St. Cosmas went around and preached during the time when the Greeks were under the slavery of the Turks, he would mention things like that in those days. He would say, men have beards because they were, using, they were shaving their beards in those days. It was a Western influence. And he says, if you let your beard grow, this is what he was saying then, if you let your beard grow, I will pray and I will take half of your sins on me. So is orthodoxy to do with some hairs on your, um, on your uh, face. They're not the most important, but we can't ignore them altogether because then we have nothing. We just, we just start to lose ourselves. There's other things too. Women dying of the hair. You know, we've had saints that actually spoke about that. And women cutting their hair, for example. All these things are important, but we feel that, oh, they're externals. Now, there are some who follow that just because it's an external. And some of them, you know, say, oh, and they're a bit obsessed. They go, oh, women, I've got long hair because this, and that's what they talk about. But they don't care about forgiveness, nothing about nothing else deep. That's wrong as well. So we have to get away from this, what's called pietism, where it's just some externals. We keep the externals together with the internal. Together. That's it. We've come to the halfway mark. Questions, please. One... Or two questions? Yes? I might ask you said to start with like people 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 that have got a sense of justice actually come and see these things. And no one says anything. And you know, got the people who say don't say this and don't say that because you've upset people and they leave the church. Why not say anything? They get upset as you said anyway. You mean about the you mean about the scandals? Yes. Yeah. Oh, the scandals. Mm. 
Um, I've never, with God's help, I've never really lost anyone that's left the church because I've told because of scandals. Actually, I think that I've helped a lot of people in that. It's like ecumenism. Some people people say, um, uh, some priests actually, oh, there's no ecumenism now. There's no ecumenism because they're scared they're going to run away and go to other churches. And I say, oh, of course there's ecumenism. Yes, there are bishops that, that are ecumenistic. But then you go through the history of the church and you see that during the time of the Turk, when the Turks had the mainland Greece, the islands were conquered by the Catholics and there, and there Orthodox priests were allowing Catholic priests to come into Orthodox churches and preach to people and confess them. Right? And that was hundreds of years ago. Did the church produce no saints then? Or the saints that existed in those times, did they leave the church? They didn't leave. So by explaining that, you calm them down. But if you insult their intelligence by saying, no, 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 nothing's going on, it's all, it's all lies, there's nothing happening, you make things worse. When people say it, I will say the truth. Yes, there is. But... Well, let's look at it historically to see how did the saints handle it when it happened in their times. Like that time, what I said before, in Russia, during Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, when they were uh, destroying monasteries, uprooting the, the essence of orthodoxy. What did the saints that lived in those times do? Many saints of Russia that lived during those times, St. Tikhonov, Zadonsk, so many saints that live. Did they leave the church? No, they didn't. But they wrote, they cultivated orthodoxy and trying to bring people back and the monastics were being persecuted and they went into the forests and they began to lead monastic lives hidden in the forest so they won't be um, persecuted. And then from the forests developed a deeper monastic spirit because monasteries had gone a bit off in Russia. So that's why God allowed those persecutions. And from those, mon from those forests came great saints. See, it was like a pruning. Sometimes the church is pruned. That's why God allows persecution. So it's like a, like a rose. You've got this beautiful rose. And then all of a sudden you go and you go chop, 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 chop. And you go, oh, what, the beautiful roses and everything. It's like it's all gone. All it is is just this little skeleton there of a couple of branches. And then you say, no, no, because for this to be beautiful for next season... You've got to chop it down, make it look ugly, but then later on it will grow even more beautiful. And that's the same in orthodoxy. That's why God allowed for 400 years the Turks to take over because during that time the church produced great saints, martyrs, and orthodoxy was, because they were being persecuted, orthodoxy was kept more and more like in communism a lot of times. Yes, a lot of bad things happened in Russia, but also we have millions of, of martyrs that were produced in Russia and other communist countries. So pruning is important. Scandals have always happened. And it doesn't mean that the church collapses because there are some buffed bishops who actually went, like the other day, one said that um, the Coptics are the same and the Catholics are the same and we're all going to join and all these type of stupidities that he said. And people say, oh, we have to run, run, let's run now. We have to run because one of the bishops of our church taught, um, uh, is teaching heresy. We do what the, what the ancient saints did, what they do. Speak up, like I'm doing now. Teach, give our books, 
preach, etc., etc., such that no one will, will take notice of him. This, in other words, just ignore him as if he doesn't exist. And sometimes when you ignore things, you know, you wish that they just go away, well, hopefully he'll just disappear. Yes? And uh, Yes, Anthony. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. That's like the Pope. You see, that, that's where you get to the stage where the Pope is the only one who is allowed to uh, speak on dogmas and things like that because if that one person who you're saying is a spokesman, if he goes off but he's the only spokesman, what, what happens then when he starts saying rubbish? Yeah. Each yes, Anthony. Each bishop is his own. See, this is the difference between the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church. In the Catholic, the Pope is the head, and even the cardinals and the bishops really are nothing, because he's he's everything. In the Orthodox Church, a local bishop there, just a, just a bishop of an area, has just as much authority as a bishop of a big city, or even as a patriarch, because the patriarch is only the the head of the synod, he is the first among equals, but he, as a patriot, has no power over that bishop. Each bishop is allowed to preach as they want unless they're teaching heresy. So it's independent. That's the difference between Catholicism and Orthodoxy. If we have these one spokesman, well, he is. He's a spokesman for the Russian church. I think he's one of them anyway, and, and that's what he's saying. You see, he's saying all these wrong things. Now it's up to the people to the theologians, the priests, the monastics, to start speaking up against him, and the struggle begins like it's always done. That's the solution. Uh, one more question, Valentina. Can... As long as that priest is still part of, say, for example, that bishop who taught, who's actually expressing heresy to the fullest, uh, he's still, all the priests he ordains are still priests, still canonical because he hasn't been defrocked. Has to be officially defrocked, just like a rotten doctor or a rotten teacher. The doctor can be the worst doctor, but, you know, if you need morphine and you're in pain and that's the worst doctor, as long as he puts his ugly little signature on that script, then you can go and get the script because he's still recognised, you know what I mean? So it's a, it's a similar type of thing. We've changed the program today uh, um, a little bit in that um, because people sometimes, you know, you've eaten at lunch but you haven't eaten for a while and I've thought that it would be good to have the sandwiches now. And then later on you can have um, extra um, food because I think uh, some of you become a little bit hungry when it's by the time we eat, say around nine or never nine thirty, becomes a bit. It's a bit late, and um, yeah. So we'll have a quick break until quarter two. Then we will um, resume with God's help. Go.
two good comments that some people made uh, during the break. One was Saint, because he heard what I said in the talk, and he said that Saint Nikolai Velimirovich, the Serbian saint, that he actually said that he, that he thanks God for his enemies, those enemies, even, even enemies that were other bishops or priests. He said that because, because of them, I became stronger. And I remember a fellow, a, a fellow said to me, he was from another, I think America maybe, and um, he said that he was in an area where the bishop was an ecumenist and that bishop would often, orthodox bishop would often say wrong things. And he, this person said that when he would hear things, he would go and check and just read what the fathers would say. Then he would try and find other priests and ask them. And then he would either telephone Greece or even went to Greece sometimes, spoke to people there as well. So once when he was in Greece and he was talking to a priest, he said, I'm quite surprised of your orthodoxy. He says, why? The young fellow said, why is that? He said, because you're in America and your orthodoxy is actually quite strong compared to these people in Greece. And he goes, how did you learn the orthodoxy? He said, my bishop taught me. And he goes, how did your bishop teach you? He's an ecumenist. And he goes, well, the more he spoke about ecumenism, the more he spoke about these wrong things, I had to check it up. So I would check and pray and, and, and get advice and go overseas and telephone and then read more and ask God to help me because I got confused. And from all that, he said, I actually became, a, in a way, stronger in my orthodoxy. And another thing is that St. Eustin uh, Popovich, another Serbian saint, or well, he hasn't been canonised yet, he actually is one of the greatest dogmatic theologians in the, in, that lived in the 20th century. Big, great saint. And... Uh, he lived in, in uh, Serbia at the time where there was communism. A lot of the hierarchs were communist in a sense. Priests were off, weren't even orthodox. Betrayers of the faith. The head of the Serbian church at that time was the head of the... The patriarch of the Serbian church at that time was the head of the World Council of Churches. That's how bad it was. And St. Eustin Bovici just stayed there. He did his struggles. He confessed the truth. They exiled him to a woman's monastery there at Celia. He wasn't really allowed to go anywhere. He should have become a bishop. They didn't even make him a bishop. They didn't want him. And they just said, you stay there, shut up, basically. Don't speak. And he would preach in a church. And I said this before, he would thunder. His sermons were like the windows were trembling. That's how powerful they were. And in the church, there's only about three or four people, by the way. And the communists hated him. The clergy hated him. The bishops hated him. They called him fanatic, etc. But from all that, he became a saint. Saint Nectarius, which you've got the book at the back, another great saint of the Greek Orthodox Church, but well known all over the world now. What was he? He was a bishop in Alexandria, under the Patriarch of Alexandria. And uh, he was slandered. Someone went to the Patriarch and said, do you know that Nectarius... He wants to become patriot. It's going to knock you off 
knock you off your throne and he's going to become. And the patriarch believed it and gave him a paper and said, basically, get lost, go, go. And when he went to Greece, no one wanted him as well. He couldn't even get, his, he couldn't get another position as a bishop. He was slandered there, he was made fun of, and then they, made him, then they gave him a job at an ecclesiastical school, take, uh, which was for young boys to train them to become priests or something like that. That was his job. Disdained, nothing, as if it was nothing. Persecuted by bishops as well. Clergy, slandered. But from that, from all that, he didn't say, I'm leaving the church because they're calling me names. But he stayed there. And from all that, you see, you see sometimes these clergy are like manure. See, when we get manure, which is smelly, you put it on a plant, nice tomato plant, you put the manure around it, and the tomato plant grows with these beautiful tomatoes, and we eat it. But really, the reason why it grows is because the manure. The manure went into the roots and it grew. So are we eating manure? No, we're eating tomatoes. But the, the same is this here. We have St. Nectarius, and we have all this manure around him. But this manure in the form of the, these clergymen, is what made this person grow into a great saint. Read his life and you'll notice. That was the one and the other one was... What was yours again? Oh, about um, priests that um, may not be able to call up. Ah, yes. Uh, people have told me in the past as well that in their churches they hear about scandals that priest or this or this and that. And I said, don't worry about that. Try, try. yes, it's true, some of it's true, some of it's lies. Ignore, because know this. Because some people say, but why can't we have good priests? And the answer is very simple. See, I like to reverse it on us. The answers are simple. God gives clergy according to the hearts of the people. In other words... Are the people, are the Christians, are the Orthodox Christians, are their hearts seeking God? Are they struggling? Are they repenting? Are they leading spiritual lives? God will give good clergy. Are the people leading lives worshipping money and sex and power and all these other things like I said before? Is that what they're doing? And if the answer is yes, then God will give clergy which is similar to them. That's the answer. Rotten people get rotten clergy. If we improve as orthodox, then God will give better clergy. So when we always say, oh, why is this and why do we have all these bad priests or this or that or they're dead or they don't do anything or they, all they care about is money and they drive around in big cars and they've got you know, quadruple story houses and things like that and we say, well, that's it because you want quadruple Story houses. You want nice cars. So you want nice cars, you want big houses, then you're going to get clergy which have the same thing. How's that? Did that one ouch a bit too? That's it. That's how we should look at it. So let me yap, yap, yap all the time about this and this and that. Just reverse it back and say that's what we deserve. Look at America. A lot of the Greeks that went there went there for the money. They went there for the money and they got the money. 
But when they got their money, they lost their faith, they lost everything, they even lost their children, a lot of them, etc. And then they started to come back to the church. They started to realise that something's not right. And what did God send them? Like in the Russians, for example, they had St. John. St. Nikolai Velimirovich was a Serbian. He actually died and lived, he lived in America for a while and died in America, from what I remember. There was another uh, priest, I don't know if he was married, but I forgot his name. He was Serbian too, like a great missionary. America's produced a lot of saints. The Greeks have received a great elder in the form of Elder Ephrem, who is an elder, as we know, like Saint, like we hear about this Elder Paisios, we hear about Elder Porfirios, etc. Elder Ephrem was given to the American Greeks, but really even Russians go and Serbians go and basically everyone goes to him. And he's produced, as I've said, 18 monasteries in Northern America, 18 monasteries. And in Greece, he's the spiritual father of another 12, I think. And um, he is the spiritual child of Elder Joseph, who lived in Mount Athos, which we haven't got in his material yet, a very great holy father, like Elder Joseph. Elder Ephraim is persecuted as well. A lot of the clergy of the Greek church don't like him. They say, oh, he has people that worship him, that he's an egomaniac, that he destroys families, that he makes people become monastics, and, you know, I don't know, whatever other rubbish they say. And the thing is that they say he's deceived, that he's demonic, that he's bad. I don't... I don't know that a deceived and demonic person can actually produce 18 full-running monasteries. I mean, how many do we have in Australia? Hardly anything. Just a couple, and some of them they call monasteries, don't even run like monasteries. So we have hardly anything. According to the people is what God gave, and according to us, we have to be satisfied with what we've got, and we can grow even with the limited that's given, and God gives more to those who are seeking him. I remember when I went to Manathos, I was at a monastery, and uh, an, an elder said to me, um, when someone's looking for the truth, when someone wants to come close to God, when someone wants to struggle in the right way, even if they haven't got a spiritual father, because there's none, there's, there is, they're limited, let's just say, because a lot of the... Sometimes spiritual fathers are limited in their guidance, in their ability to guide. I feel limited. That's why I avoid it. It's very difficult. Anyway, he said even if a person's on the mountain by himself, God will work out somehow to bring that person guidance because in his heart he wants it. So that's important to note that. Let's now go on with what we're speaking about. So we said before that all these little things of getting your malebans done and having all these favours, they're okay to a certain level, but it's not enough. When someone says to me, oh, um, today in church 
you had so many people, let's just say, and they came to the holy water. And I said, yes. And I go, oh, you should be happy for that. And I said, maybe, maybe not. Goes, but you've got a lot of people. But a lot of people is not an indication that things are going well spiritually. A priest said to me once, today we had 80 communicants, meaning 80 people communed. It was a big feast day. I said, oh, really? Uh, how many confessed? He goes, 80. I said, 80 confessed, 80 communed. He goes, yes. I go, how about penances and you know things like that? I mean, how, does, how can all those people be in the position to commune? And he goes, they all commune. He couldn't understand, and, and um, uh, that's not right, which we'll come to now. Okay. Why, if this priest had 80 people come into commune, why did I say that this isn't good on in and of itself? You see, I am known for my... Some people say that, oh, he's anti, anti-communion, for example. Because if someone comes to me or used to come to me, the first thing that I would do is examine and then pretty much say, don't commune for a while. So people say, oh, he must be against Holy Communion. If you notice from my talks... Uh, we are now up to, this is up to, this is talk number 26, with God's help. This is talk number 26. If you listen to the talks, I don't refer much to Holy Communion. Why? Does that mean I'm against Holy Communion? No. Because I wasn't ready to mention Holy Communion because personally I believe that a lot of people aren't ready for Holy Communion and therefore I wasn't mentioning it because I didn't want to talk about it in an enthusiastic way such that people then run to go and commune and then make themselves worse. I've always believed that there's been something wrong with people being allowed to commune for the sake of communing. For example, in some churches, confession doesn't even exist. For other churches, you can confess or you don't have to confess, like in the Greek church, which St. John Chrysostom says that, you know, when you've got churches with hundreds and hundreds of people, you can't control anything. So he says it's, you know, the priest is obliged to commune people unless he knows for sure that that person shouldn't commune. He has no real right to stop the person. That's what St. John Chrysostom says. In the Russian church, you have to confess each time. Is confession enough? And the answer is no. Even if the confessions were done, one can say, were done in, like a lot of times people might go and confess one or two things, the priest reads. If the person's got nothing to say, then the priest reads them anyway. Some priests, even, even they're so short of time that as you're speaking, they're already knocking you to the ground and reading you the prayer. In other words, be quiet. No time. So doesn't that sound strange that this is what people regard as the greatest thing in orthodoxy is if a person confesses and then communes, that's the ultimate. But I say no. And 
I've touched on it, but recently I've come across some excellent books by Metropolitan Neurothos Vlachos, which is some we've got about there called Illness of the Soul, etc., and uh, Orthodox Spirituality, Orthodox Psychotherapy. I bought a few. Some of them are a bit hard. And finally, I was able to find what I've always believed, but I couldn't express it because I was scared that people were going to say I'm a heretic. So I've got to be careful of what I'm saying. But now, finally, I found it, and I'm able to a little bit more comfortably say it publicly, or before I would say it more to individuals. Individuals that would come to me, I'd say, don't commune. So when can a person commune then? What does um, the church teach? Firstly, let's have some definitions. The mysteries, as we call them, the sacraments in Greek, mysteria, baptism, chrismation, the Holy Eucharist, which is communion, the liturgy, and we receive communion. Through those sacraments, that's why they're called mysteries, because it's done in a mysterious way, the grace of God enters the heart of a person, sanctifies them. While through ascetic practice, which, which we say ascesis, asceticism, we prepare the way for God's grace, this is the definition, and I have to explain it, to act therapeutically and receive forgiveness within the heart, and we also safeguard the divine grace that we have received through the sacraments. Now, what does that mean? This is very, very important. Um... Holy Communion, without ascesis, without spiritual struggle, is dangerous. Holy Communion, as St. Paul says, it says that I hear that many of you are sick and are, have died. And what he means by that is that they were communing unworthily, and they became sick, spiritually and physically, and some even died from Holy Communion in that way. And hence what I'm trying to say. Do we ignore St. Paul's advice? And, and some would say, oh, but doesn't that mean that they haven't confessed? It means to confess. So some priests even say, as long as you confess, then what St. Paul says doesn't apply for you. You are worthy once you confess then you can commune. But the answer is no, confession is not of itself the true preparation for Holy Communion. It's one of the things, but not completely. Because a lot of people, I have to say, confess uh, incorrectly. So this is where it becomes a little bit um, difficult and you have to listen uh, carefully. What it says here is that holy, sorry, ascetic practice, ascesis, when a person spiritually struggles through prayer, through fasting, through doing the commandments, that's what ascesis means. It means actually struggling to keep the commandments of Christ, sprinkled, based all on repentance. This is what asceticism is. And one has to do that to be able to be in the position to receive communion and receive benefit from the communion. Many things we have to prepare to go to university. There has to be certain prerequisites. You've got to have 
passed certain things, you have to have done certain things, and then if you've done those things, and then they will, can allow you in. Anything. I don't know what other preparations. I can't think of other things now in my head. It's the same with the spiritual. You have to have done certain things to put yourself in a position to be able to receive the benefit that, that the mysteries give, whether the mysteries are baptism for older people, because the younger ones, but let's just say adults, whether it's chrismation, whether it's the Holy Eucharist, which is the Holy Communion, we have to be prepared. And the way that we prepare is through our spiritual life, which is the ascesis, through our ascetical life. Then, if those things are done in an orthodox manner, then the Holy Communion will be of benefit. Forgiveness of sins and life ever asked for illumination, for enlightenment, for protection, for cleansing. And if you read the communion prayers, that's what it speaks about. So in other words, if someone's not even leading a spiritual life and just comes up for confession and says a few things, and even if those few things might be some of them, they might feel a little bit guilty or whatever, and then they say, okay, now you go and commune, that's not beneficial. Spiritual rebirth is accomplished through the sacraments. However, God cannot do it on his own. So God can work on us, can operate on us through his mysteries that the church gives, but God needs our help on, on his own. He can't do it. He needs us to cooperate, he, and that's what's called uh, Synergy, it is like where God works together with the person. The person works together with God. We need to be put in, in our effort, not just go and we do uh, nothing at all and then we just go to commune, which is what the Catholics do, by the way. This grace of God is offered through the sacraments. Our response to this great gift is a matter of our effort. How much it benefits us is according to how much we're struggling. Thus, God operates, man cooperates, as the um, fathers of the church say. So, you use another word, thus, God works and man co works, works with God. A person can't do it on his own. And God can't do it on his own. They need the two together. St. Gregory Palamas, who actually for, formulated this teaching back in his days, 14th century, I think, because um, there, um, there was heresies going on there, he says uh, that baptism is not enough because some people believed in those days as well, like if they were baptised as adults, and like now a lot of converts, once you're baptised, that's it, you're holy. When people come to me and say, I want to be baptised, I say, uh, hmm. I say, yes, but it might take one year, it might take two years, it might take three years. Because the church teaches that asceticism, that the ascesis, the spiritual life, has to be before baptism. It has to be a spiritual life, struggle with the passions, with the thoughts, etc., and 
fasting, doing the commandments of God. And then when the person's baptised, they continue this ascesis, this spiritual struggle, but more. But today it's like, um, oh, you want to become orthodox? Yes. Do you believe in what the orthodox church believes? Here's a couple of books. Read the books. Okay. You do, are you doing your prayers? Yes. Okay, come and get baptised. But that's, I, to me, that's fearful. Because it's like you're pushing the person to go for a catastrophe. The ascetic life is not only for monastics. It is the keeping of the commandments of God by all followers of Christ. Everyone has to do the commandments of Christ. Our endeavour to put into practice God's commandments is what's called asceticism in Christ. That's what spiritual life is. Doing the commandments of Christ based on repentance, which then gives sanctification, you know, cleanses us, etc. After his resurrection, Christ said to his disciples, now this is a quote, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptise them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. What does that mean? What's the hint? My friend there, Jay, yep. Did you hear that? Did you hear what it says there? It says, did you, did you note anything? Go. It says, go make disciples. How? How do we make a disciple? How, do, how does one become a disciple of Christ? That you must be baptised in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And what was the next part? Do you remember? That's okay. Teach them to observe all things that I commanded you. In other words, it's not just that Christ says, go and baptise everyone and then commune everyone, but teach them to observe all things I command. What did Christ teach? He, te he taught prayer. He taught fasting. He taught about the thoughts. He taught about the passions and the heart, etc. Not just the mysteries. This is why St. Gregory Palamas stresses that baptism is not enough to make a disciple of the gospel. In other words, baptism, and thereafter the mysteries, is not enough that someone's a Christian, to, to be a true Christian. The keeping of the commandments is also necessary, not moralism, not because we do a couple of little things that means that we're good people, because that's externals, that's a couple of things. That's just the, like the, the, the Ten Commandments, but there's more to it than that. When Christ came along, he went deeper. Christ brought to us the inner life, even though Prophet David in his Psalms that's what it's all about. The Psalms is the inner life. Create in me a, a, a pure heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Lord, show me my secret sins, etc., etc. You read Prophet David's uh, Psalms, it's all to do with spiritual life. But the Jews at that time were a little, what we say, um, spiritually dense, and they didn't pick up. They just would involve themselves in some little externals. And today, unfortunately, I'm not saying that out of... Um, horribleness, but today, but more out of pain, but today it's the same thing, that Orthodox Christians today are very similar to the Jews of old in that they are spiritually dead to the truth of what God wants from us and we are uh, uh, worrying about a little bit of things like we get the slava, the priest comes, does a slava, does anyone believe, does it really matter? That's the tradition. We do the slava for the Serbians and the Greeks. They say, oh, you know, you've got to go and communion on your name day. What for? Why are you communion on your name day? For good luck. Oh, superstition. Go, you have to go to Easter 
And you see these, these parents pushing their children, the mothers usually pushing with full force, bang like that, and go and commune. Because it's Easter. You don't commune because it's Easter. You don't commune because it's Christmas. You don't commune because it's your name day. You don't commune at all. Unless you are leading a spiritual life. The keeping of the commandments is also necessary. In actual fact, all the Orthodox saints state, and also practice it, that for a person to be cured and hence be saved, you have to have a combination of the sacraments and the ascetic life. Both are needed. There was two heresies, the two tendencies in the church from ancient times, which still exist now. One of the heresies, the wrong, wrong teachings, was regarding, uh, always been to, regarding the sacraments and asceticism. The first tendency was that the sacraments of the church, in particular Holy Baptism and the Holy Communion, the Holy Eucharist, are not of such great importance for man's salvation. These heretics claim that what unites a person with God, how a person becomes healed, how a person is saved, in other words, is through this ascetical uh, life, which is called hesychasm. I don't, I won't go there, just the ascetical life as the monastic like um, tradition, which cleanses man and accomplishes him his unity with God. Not the sacramental life. Spiritual struggle is the most important, not the mysteries. Then there was another heresy, another extreme, which said that the mysteries of themselves is what sanctifies a man and that the spiritual life, well, you do a little bit of that, but that's not as important. Where are we living now? Which one? Which heresy? The first or the second? Gabriel, which one do you think? Yeah, which one more? You weren't listening. The sandwiches didn't, didn't lift up your blood sugar, which was, well, that was my aim. You look a bit dazed. The first tendency was that only spiritual struggle is what's really important, the mysteries a little bit, while the second tendency was that the mysteries are more important, commune and, and, and etc. but the ascetical life is not that important. Which, where are we living now? The second one. You understand? The sandwiches worked for them. Um, it's okay. That's okay. I, if I was in your position now, sitting there, I'd be asleep on the floor. I, I can't sit for long periods. Like here I'm all right because that's what I've got to move my hands, get, get the blood going. But if I'm sitting on chairs, I fall asleep actually. So you're doing quite well. Um, I'm, not, I'm not, sorry? No, no. You, you lose concentration. It's very long. That's okay. Okay, good. You're pondering. So... This second tendency, which has entered the Orthodox Church, I believe anyway, has been influenced by Western, by the Western Church, the Catholics more, Protestants, Catholics, where for them the most important thing is the fact that they commune, they go to Mass, they and the Pope. So that's the most important thing for them. In the Orthodox Church, we are noticing this same type of trend where... People are told to commune, commune, prichast. I don't know how you say it in Serbian. How do you say it in Russian? How do you say it, um, Ksenia? Yes. Yeah, that's the word. Um, there, and in Greek, the kinonia, they say commune and commune and commune and commune. Some even say confess and commune. How about the spiritual life? Well, some will say that they do the fast. 
The Pharisees did fasting as well. Some say they give money to the church. The Pharisees did that as well. They taught one-tenth. Do you give one-tenth? Better not touch on that subject. People get very upset. Um, so... No, not even fastings, actually, because a lot of people, some, not a lot of people, but yeah, I think that there are people who actually do do the fasts and, be, and they're proud of it. Some do a bit of prayer. Some might give money to the poor. But the ascetic life is not just that. It's actually keeping the commandments struggling to keep the commandments of Christ, putting all your effort to keep the commandments of Christ, cleansing ourselves from passions, thoughts, so that God can come and dwell in us and we to dwell in God. Doesn't Christ say, you know that a person loves me, meaning Christ, if they keep my commandments... And ascesis is that method, that effort that one uses to keep the commandments. A sacramental life without ascetical life cannot save a person. Opposite. Ascetic life without the sacramental life, same thing, cannot save a person. Without this combination, it is impossible for orthodox life and orthodox theology Orthodox spirituality, whatever you want to call it, to exist. There is no orthodox life without both together. Participation in the sacraments must be combined with the practice of the ascetic life of the church. Otherwise, the grace that we get from the mysteries, from the sacraments, does not contribute to our salvation. We are not saved if we're not struggling by participating in Holy Communion or Confession or whatever. But rather, the saints say, it's to our punishment. That's why I actually say to people when they when you know come and they want some advice, whatever, or in the old days when I used to give more, I have to determine, are these people actually leading spiritual lives? Are they struggling? And if I feel that the person's not leading a spiritual life, I would say to the person, stop. Just communion, leave that now. But communion is most important. Leave the communion. And you know what? A lot of times people actually get better because a lot of times when people come, they actually are confused, out of it, disturbed, heavy. And then as soon as you tell them to stop communion, especially if they commune often, uh, you know, within a few months you notice they improve. Improve? How can they improve if they're not communing? Strength, you hear today. A lot of people, like I even see priests, they go, you've got to commune. Strength, strength. You can get strength from multivitamins. You don't have to commune to get strength. What strength means is spiritual strength. Not, I don't know what this strength they're talking about. You've got to commune to, to get strong. But yet, I have noticed that people who stop communing over a period of time actually improve. Here's an example. I've been uh, talking to a person whose wife has demonic problems. His wife um, 
uh, goes into what's called in Greek krisi, that she goes into like a crisis and she begins to speak with demons and you know she's out of her and she's like she's heavily influenced by demonic spirits, bad, pretty bad. And, she has to, and they, what they did is they, they used to go to the priest to read her exorcisms, often. And while she was while she's being read, they have to hold it down, and she shouts and screams, and then things come out of her mouth, and she speaks all these things. On, and um, some people go out of curiosity to go and look at it as if they're watching some film or something. And uh, I said to him, you know, Elder Paisio said that people shouldn't get the exorcisms done. You, we have, you know, you should actually, um, I believe, as I said to him, and I, and I think so too, as I've experienced that myself, I think by you getting exorcisms done on your wife, you're making her worse. You're making her worse. And he said to me, um, what are you saying? And I said, lucky I'm on the phone. If I was there, you'd probably stone me as being a heretic or something, because it's like I'm saying something bad, like I'm non-orthodox because I'm saying not to do the exorcism, because the exorcisms is what, that's what it's for. And I said, but Elder Paisio said, and, and I said, and I've experienced it as well, but the elder, that's it, don't worry about me, the elder said, stop the exorcisms, because when the priest does exorcisms on a person who's not prepared for the exorcisms, the demons revenge that person and actually fight them worse and make them worse. Because he says, you're getting exorcisms done, then I will make it worse for you. If she's got like a demonic problem, I'm not going to say she's possessed, I don't think that they're actually living within her. I think she's, she's um, heavily influenced. They influence her a lot. If they were in her, it'd be a whole different thing. She'll have distortion of tongues and their faces become different and they have extra, really extraordinary strength and things like that where five, six men can't even hold them down. And this person, I think, was, um, had influence. Anyway, he didn't listen. And all the time, still doing the exorcisms, exorcisms all the time. And communion. Communion, exorcisms, communion, exorcisms. I said, what does your wife actually do like in spiritual struggle? Does she pray? goes, oh, she can't because she's out of it. Oh, okay. Does she read spiritual books? No. Does she fast? No. She's too sick. Okay. It's fair enough. If she's sick, it's hard to fast. Uh, what does she do then? Exorcism and communion. Exorcisms, communion. That's it. And I said, he rang me up again. I said to him, have you stopped the exorcism of communion yet? The exorcisms. I was more on the exorcisms. And he said, no. It's no, 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 no. If she doesn't have exorcisms, then she's going to become worse. I guarantee you she'll get better. I said, I guarantee you that she will get better. So he rang me up again and he was all jolly and things like that. I thought he just came back from the dentist. And, and I said to him, what happened? Because dentists give gas, you know. And um, <laughs> he said, you're not going to believe it. I said, what? Goes my wife. She speaks to me now. I go, what do you mean? Before it was just, uh, uh, like, out of it. He said, she's actually going out. What she used to do before, I used to stay in bed and we sprawled on the couch. That was it. Because she just was so... Uh, 
heavy. Go, oh, all right. She's laughing. She's smiling. Go, oh, really? She's even lost weight because she's gone to Jenny Craig. I said, oh, why didn't she go to Jenny Craig before? Because she couldn't walk out the door because she was so out of it. Hmm. I said, what do you think of that? He goes, oh, no, it must be because we stopped the exorcisms. I go, I think so. Yes, that, that's what it is because now they're not revenging her continually. And he goes that when she used to go to commune, they had to hold her because when she would approach communion, she would shake like that. Like the whole body used to shake when she would go for communion, which is a sign. And um, he goes, now she can walk up to communion without shaking. There's one thing. So as soon as she stopped the exorcisms, she got much better. Then I said, now the second stage, stop the communion. No, he said, that's, uh, no, 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 that's what she needs and this and that. I go, she will get better if she even stops the communion. He goes, but the communion is what helps her and this. I said, no, it's not going to help her because she's not doing what? Valentina, what isn't she doing? That's it. I said, it's good that she's going to Jenny, right? I'm happy to hear that. I'm happy that she's um, lost weight. That's really good. That's really, really good. But now that she's not as out of it, because it's true that when you, when you do have these demonic things on you, a lot of times the person's just really uh, heavy and they, sometimes they can't even speak. It's, that's really bad. And I said, now she's able to start some prayer, a little bit of fasting according to her health, just a little bit, whatever she can do according to the doctor, etc. Some spiritual struggle, cultivate repentance, and do the commandments of Christ. Try to struggle to do the commandments of Christ. And he was doing, you know, blah, 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 like the, the porky pig thing that we talk about. No, 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 we can't, um, you know, because it's um, the communion is necessary. I go, okay, it's up to you. You stop it, she will improve. I know people who haven't communed for three, four years because they refuse to do spiritual life. Now, you remember the, the, the three prostration example? I asked the person who is what's called in spiritual paralysis, just can't do much at all spiritually. Won't read, won't pray, can't even go to church much, can't do hardly anything. I said to this person, all you have to do is just put some effort, even a little bit of effort, that's what God wants, just some effort on your part and then God can work with you, just a little bit. Just do three prostrations. Three prostrations are like that, and they go on the ground and up again. You know, like semi-push-ups, not really push-ups, but, you know, you know prostrations. Oh, you've seen them in church. Up and down like that. Three times. That's it. That's all I want you to do. No Bible, no fasting, no nothing. Just that is all I want you to do. Three prostrations a day. See the person later on or bring up. How's it going? I uh, can't do it. But why? He goes, oh, I'm busy. Or I've got shift work. I go, Okay. If you've got shift work, that means that you work, say, four nights, and the other three days you get off. How about the three days that you're off? Oh, I'm resting then. So you can't do three prostrations. No, I go, don't commune. 
He goes, oh, she goes, um, I haven't, I haven't communed for one and a half years. Let it be another one and a half years. Let it be two, three, four, five. You're better off not to commune until you're ready to do some struggle rather than to do what you're doing. Now, to me, it's impossible that that person can't do three prostrations. Impossible. Because some people say, oh, you're a strict priest. Strict priest? Well, because I told you to do three prostrations. People say, oh, if you go to him, he'll make you do all these hysterical things. What? Maybe when I was younger, because I was a bit, you know, I wasn't, I didn't know. I was. Now that many years have gone past, I've realised you don't have to give people a lot, just a little bit. Another person I just said, okay, I want you to read from your prayer book, this prayer book here. Got the morning prayers and the night prayers. I want you to read every morning, just read three of the, of the prayers, because they're around ten in the morning prayers. Just read three. The next day you can read the next three. Just three. How long will that take? He goes, oh, I don't know, two minutes? That's it. That, that's your program. He goes, really? And some people get offended. They actually think, they go, oh, he's offending me. He thinks I'm not spiritual because he's only given me a couple of prayers to do. They want big things like prayer ropes and they want to be able to stand with their feet off the ground and be in light with stars like a Catholic saint. And I say, no, that's, that will we'll come to the stars later on. But for you now, all I want you to do is to do just those three prayers. Very simple, two minutes. Come back again. Have you done it? No. Oh, I did it for a while, but I can't do it now. Why? I just can't do it. See? Why is because this is the spiritual struggle. When we have to put our effort into it, it's a whole different ball game. This is where the fruit is produced through our effort. Of course, God's grace is for free. Because people say, when Christ died on the cross, he forgave our sins for free. Yes, that's true. We don't have to do anything to receive God's forgiveness. That's true. God's forgiveness comes because of his love for mankind. That's true. However, we have to at least show that we want his forgiveness. We have to put ourselves in a way to find ourselves worthy, even though we are unworthy, to receive his grace. So that, he's, so that God's grace can work within us, so that we can receive forgiveness, so that we can receive cleansing, enlightenment, etc. And today, people refuse to do spiritual struggle. A young person many years ago um, came to the church and he said to me, um, uh, I've, um, he had some of those Akathis books and other books. He goes, I'm reading Akathis and they're so beautiful and they're really, I feel so good and I feel so peaceful. I go, that's good. It's good to hear. I said, but, you know, it's not going to last long. He goes, why? I go, because God might in the beginning let you experience these things, but after a while you've got to have put some effort in. But I love doing it. I don't have to put any effort. It's just It's natural for me to do it. And then... It didn't last about three weeks after that. He came to me as if he was in a, like a boxing match or something. I thought that's, uh, he just said, what, did you just go to a boxing match or something? Because he was like, his face looked like it had been punched about a hundred times. And he was out of it. He was, being, he was knocked around. And I just said, what's wrong? He goes, um, uh, I can't do it. I can't, I can't do the prayers anymore. I go, okay, that's, I told you that. 
That's okay. Now force yourself. And then he comes to another, another level. He goes, and I, he had a problem. He had a problem because he was living at home. Was it, no, I don't know how old he was, maybe 18. He was li living at home. And his passion was that he used to fight a lot with his parents. Or his, was it both of them? I can't remember. Anyway, we'll say both of them. His parents. And I said to him, okay, here's the chance now. Here's your spiritual life. This is your spiritual life. Your spiritual life is to struggle, not to fight with the parents, to actually learn with God's help, making an effort not to talk back, not to cause friction, not to say inappropriate words. Just That's your struggle. That, that can be for you what can produce spiritual fruit. And he says, I oh, know I can't do it. No, sorry, sorry, he said he did it, he, he, he tried. And then he came back and he said, um, I can't do it because it's their fault and they, they make me nervous, I don't know what he was saying. He goes, um, I want to leave home so that I can actually um, lead a spiritual life away from my parents, right? And I said, and I, and I just wish, which of course I can't, but he was just so out of it, so like he was in another world, I felt like just getting my hands and going bang on his face like that to wake him up. So what, what are you saying? Why do you have to leave? Because uh, I can't do spiritual life there. But this is where God has given you to do your spiritual life. From that, you will actually become more spiritual through that struggle, putting your effort to shut your mouth and, and do things like that. And he said, I'll come to it. Another person that was in the church for many years, communion often, did some prayers like a Pharisee, and then I said to him, okay, look, you know, you've been in the church for quite a few years now. I think the time's come for me to tell you a few truths. Now we've got to start spiritual struggle. And he looked at me strange saying, isn't that what I'm doing? I go, not really. That's not spiritual struggle. Spiritual struggle is when you start fighting with your passions, when you start fighting with your ego, when you start to try to keep God's commandments. I said, I've noticed that you're very cold towards your wife and towards your kids. I feel that you just don't have love for them. I want you to struggle and force yourself to do God's commandments, which is to love your wife, love your children. So he tried. That went on for a few months. And he was saying to me... Um, Beforehand, before I told him that, a while ago, he was saying to me, oh, you know, thank you very much because, you know, with your help, I find that my children are better. I find that, you know, I even got a pay rise. Thank you for the meleben that you did. No, higher position, I think it was. And he said, and, you know... For sicknesses, I feel that my children are protected and and all these benefits. He goes, oh, there's so much benefit that I, that I receive. And I said, that's correct. When we have a priest who um, is close to a family, of course you get benefit because the priest prays and reads prayers, etc., etc. He was very happy for that until I told him to fight his coldness. I said, you must fight your coldness. It's time now for you to break that barumeno, as we say, that uh, what do you call it, frozen heart. You know, chisel and start to chisel away at that frozen heart. That's, uh, that's what we have to do. 
And he says, I can't. He goes, I can't do it. I go, so you're saying to me that you're not going to try? He goes, I can't do it. Okay. Bye-bye. Not going to waste my time. There's other people. There's other people. Elder Paisio said, when a priest notices people who come to him who have zeal, who want to be saved, who want to struggle, he says, pay more attention to them. On my first day that I was ordained as priest in Serbia, Kosovo actually, I said to the bishop, you know, Vladika, tell me some advice as now as a newly ordained priest. And he told me some advice. But buffet that I was, I listened to it, but I didn't listen to it. I listened, I heard what he said, but I must have not asked in the right spirit. Something wasn't right because I just heard it, but didn't follow it. And I paid for it. For many years I suffered because I didn't listen to the advice. Actually, I was offended, to be truthful. I'll, I'll, I'll confess, I was offended. That's why when I say about people get offended when you give them a little bit of prayer rules. I was offended because I thought that his advice, I thought he was going to sit down and talk to me. He only said one sentence, and I was offended. I go, sorry, is that the advice? Just one sentence? I was offended. I thought, well, you know, my pride was hurt, and I thought... Um, I expected that he would actually have a dialogue and explain things. That was my pride. And this was his advice. Have I got you into suspense for for the advice? The advice was help those who want to be helped. That's it. That was his advice. Help those who want help. Help those who want to lead spiritual lives. That was basically his one sentence. And I listened and I became offended. Young, stupid that I am at the time, doesn't mean I'm not now, but at that time, even worse. And I didn't listen to that advice. And what I did is I was helping, and I've helped people who really weren't interested in salvation. Those are the orange people, not the ones that down at um, the Hoyts where they play those, you know, the ones that Hare Krishna, what they're called. Not those orange people, people that, as I said before, that bring the oranges to you. As I said, that's okay. That's okay up to a certain level. A lot of times people do that. I say actually some very cutting remarks, not to new people, not to people that don't know much, but people that have been in the church for years, like that guy with his wife. And I said to him, look, why come to me? You know, you can go to a Buddhist temple or go to um, some other place, a mosque. I don't know, you can go somewhere else. Because spiritual life to you is just getting Take your oranges and go. So, um, that was the advice I was given. And as I said, I didn't listen and blew up in my face and suffered quite a bit of helping people who weren't interested. So when I'm saying that, I'm speaking and saying, oh, you know, isn't isn't that wrong when people, you know, maybe people might become interested later. A lot of priests are wasting time on people who are not really interested much. And it's up to the priest. The priest has been given by God that authority to look and see who's interested, who's not, and to pay attention 
Christ went into the mountains and he taught. He didn't go much to the cities or to the other places because they weren't interested. A lot of the Jews weren't interested. Especially he went far away where he said the, um, the, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor and blessed are the, those who mourn now. He went out, that was very far away. And remember the time where he actually multiplied the bread and the fish and they were very far away. Why did he go far away? Why couldn't he just go to the town? Why didn't he go to the town where it was easier? Or why didn't he go to the city where there was more people? Because he didn't want to make them worse by preaching to them and for them to reject it and become blasphemers. Remember when he went to a town and he says that Christ did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. If he would have done miracles in front of them, many of them would have actually blasphemed and goes, which they did a lot of times, oh, he's doing that with the power of the devil. Personally for me, I would not like to go to churches, even if I was told to go to churches and do what I'm doing now, like during services. I wouldn't do it. I like what I'm doing now. Why? Because you people have to make an effort to come, which means you have some interest. Plus the fact that you are sitting on those chairs for three hours shows that you must have a lot of interest because those chairs really make a person suffer. A person who stays here for three hours and listens to this See, if people come just for the food, some might come for the food. Some people say, oh, it's really nice food. <laughs> Eat as much as you want. That's okay. Some people that came in the past, they don't come now. They go, oh, I can't believe it. I've never gone to a talk with such beautiful food. I go, really? They go, yeah. I go, yeah, you're welcome to come. Whatever. They came once, twice, never came again. You know why? Because it was, it was like, oh, ouch. It's like they were being bitten by mosquitoes. It was the talk. They go, I'll blow the food, I'm leaving. (laughs) It's too much. Some people even come for social reasons. Some people even come maybe maybe to find a wife or a husband. That's okay. They won't last either. So if I went to churches and did did what I'm doing with you now, um, the committee would actually say, can you please not come anymore? The committee would say, don't come anymore because... Uh, people get upset or people don't like because people a lot of times don't want to hear anything and they're not used to it and that's why I wouldn't if I I did I would speak completely different to what I'm speaking now I'd speak a little bit more lightly a little bit carefully you know got to be like that and because they're not used to it if I said in a church today so I went into a a, a Greek church with thousands of people and I said to them um, I wouldn't be invited anyway but let's say I went to a, a Greek church and I said there that uh, communion is not important unless you struggle. Unless you do in spiritual struggle, then don't commune. The committee would say, out. Don't come back again. I would say to him, you're welcome, I wouldn't come back. And um, people would get very upset. They'll complain to the bishop and, 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 and. That is why I prefer this. People want to come, they come. They don't want to come, they don't come. That's the example of Christ. Christ went far away and people came there. Thousands of people came there. And then he said, 
it's getting late. He said to his apostles, feed them. And the apostle says, how can we feed all these thousands of people? All we've got is a bit of two pieces of fish and some loaves of bread. How can we feed them with that? And Christ multiplied the bread and the, and the fish and everyone ate. But what's important is that the people that went there didn't know they were going to get that gift. They went. They went even though they were hungry, even though that Christ said, oh, look, you know, I'm concerned that as they're going back home they could faint because they haven't eaten. We need effort. Effort is important. And that's why I said to that person goodbye, and I've said goodbye to quite a few people because of that reason. There's no point in wasting time. If a person has no respect, if a person doesn't want to listen, then there are people who do want to listen and the priest should spend their time with those people, help them. When those people improve, then others will improve, then others will improve, then others will improve. If anyone will not work, St Paul says, neither shall he eat. In other words, if someone's not physically doing work, if they're lazy, they, shouldn't be, they, they don't deserve to eat as well. No food for them. They have to work. St Paul was very strict with that. Bludges are not accepted. They must work. But we can look at that spiritually as well. If people will not work spiritually through ascesis, then neither should they eat of the body and blood of Christ. That's what the saints say. God remains with repentant sinners. In other words, when we have sinned, which we all do, and we repent, then God will come to us. But when we are unrepentant, he flees from us. He can't. Not because he hates us. Because God is pure, he just can't dwell in a person who is unrepentant. He, he wishes that he could, but he can't because the person doesn't want him. Repentance is achieved through the keeping of the commandments. Now, this is very important. I'm getting dizzy. Hmm. What did I just say? I forgot. Oh, yeah, this is the secret now. This is what the church fathers say and what personally, whatever it's worth, I have verified even through my own self and through the helping of others as a priest, I've noticed this is the truth. This is the truth. And the truth is as follows. When someone goes and says, I'm going to keep God's commandments. I am going to do the commandments. And puts an effort into it, and like that young fellow fails, that's okay. That's actually good. Because when someone fails, they can go to two things. A person say, for example, he knows that he shouldn't. Let's look at it like let's let's look at an, uh, a bad example that even Orthodox Christians do, which is the internet, looking at inappropriate things on the internet, and this is wrong. So most people will look at the internet 
maybe say it when they go to confession, if they go, and then they go and commune. Uh, another person, for example, came to me many years ago and she said to me that she was seeing a person who was married with children and she was supposedly sorry. And she goes, I want you to read me the prayer of forgiveness. I said, no way. No. She goes, why? The other priest I go to read me the prayer. I know, but that's why you're still with him. You're still with him. Because that's what they do. They read you the prayer and have never said to you, stop. Or they might say to you, stop. Don't do it again. Yes, Father, no, I won't do it again. And as soon as you commune, off you go to ring him up. I said, no. I said, I will not read you the prayer until you stop. Telephones, everything. Because, but I will. I said, no, I don't trust you. Because it's, these passions are strong. Fruits of repentance. Remember St. John the Baptist said, show fruits of repentance. It wasn't enough for the soldiers to come and, and, and other people that came to be baptised in the waters. And he said, show fruits of repentance. Prove you're repentant. You stole money, give it back. You're seeing someone behind your wife's back or your husband's back, stop. Fruits of repentance. Prove it. Prove your repent. Not just to go to the priest and go, I've done this, this and this and walk off commune and go back and do it. There has to be proof that you're repentant. Okay? Some women have committed abortions. Fruits of repentance. What could that be? They have children. And if they can't have children, then they can uh, adopt or they can help others who have children that are poor or things like that financially. They can buy books if there's any that exist. There's a book there which I've told people to buy, uh, those who have done an abortion, an akathis. Uh, they can give them out. They can give out pamphlets if they want. They say, I want to spend $100. I want to buy, I want to produce something. I want to give it out to as many people as possible which speaks about abortion. Good. That's fruits of repentance. It's not enough just to go to the priest and go, I've done an abortion. Okay, you're sorry? Yes, I'm sorry. Read the prayer. Finish. That's not how it works. We have to produce fruits of repentance. So this person, I said to her, okay, I'll do, which I knew. I said, I'll do you a favour. I'll go against what I usually do. Don't ring him for three days, just three days. And then I'll read you the prayer. If you do three days, that three seems to be like a magic figure, like the three prostrations, three days, and if you do that, then I'll read you the prayer. She couldn't even wait three hours. She couldn't even do three hours. And at the end, she kept on doing it, this and this. I go, look, if you don't leave him, then... Stop ringing me, okay? You will leave him and leave him be with his family. I said, which is the, what, what you're doing is the worst thing because he's got children and a wife. Leave him and I want to know that you've left him and I want it to be for a period of time and then you will receive the forgiveness and then we'll talk about communion later on. 
but you will leave him. Uh, if you do that, I said, I'll be here and I'll help you as much as you want. Never rang again. That was it. Okay. Now, some priests will say, no, but you should help him. Out. Help what? She doesn't want any. She doesn't want. She doesn't want to leave him. Oh, but she's weak. And if you let her commune, then she'll get strength. But she's been communing from the other priests for um, months while she was with him. Did she stop? No. A lot of people that are actually mentally ill is because they're communing not, without struggle. The, all, all these holy elders that I'm reading now, they actually say that for the majority of not all, because we've got to be careful, but the, a lot of mental problems exist today because people aren't leading spiritual lives. They're not struggling. I read something the other night, Metropolitan Yerothos Vlakos. He actually said, when someone goes into the subconscious, like psychiatrists do, that's why a lot of them abandoned. You know, the old days with Sigmund Freud, and they used to say, they used to sit down and try to go and bring up the traumatic experiences or some forgotten traumas that they've had or bad things that have happened to them. And they try to go into the subconscious, and then by understanding what's in the subconscious, the person becomes better. That's what Freud and a lot of those people believed. He believed a lot of them were sexual repressions, whatever, it doesn't matter. And uh, this Metropolitan, which was, I've never really read it like that. And he actually said that when you do that with someone without the grace of God, you can actually make them into schizophrenics. Some people actually can't go deep. And he said, how does a person become better? Leading a spiritual life, doing the commandments of Christ, and slowly, 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 slowly through his struggles or her struggles, the person begins to realise and then they kind of come to terms that there's certain things there and they can cope with it with God's grace because God's grace is what calms the person, helps the person, heals the person. These psychiatrists can't heal. They can help to a certain level, put Band-Aids on. But unless you treat the inside, you know, they can do some type of help. They can help people, prevent people from committing suicide a lot of times when it's really bad. People also have physiological problems where it's actually a disease of their head. It's not actually a spiritual problem. They need help. So the church is not against that. But the majority of things you can heal through spiritual life. People are very scared of meeting themselves. Once this fellow said to me that um, he read in some books that he was reading, he goes that self-knowledge is important. I said, that's correct. Self-knowledge is important. The aim of the orthodox Christian is to know himself. And by knowing himself, that's how he begins to know God. The more one knows himself, the closer he becomes with God. And he read this in some books and he took in his mind and he said, I want to be like that. I want to know myself. What's called willy-nilly. What does willy-nilly mean? He read it and he wants it. That's it. Not coming from proper reasons. Why did he want it? He wanted it because that's how you're progressed. And he wanted to be known as being progressed. So is it bad to want to progress in the spiritual life? Yes, if it's out of pride. Nothing wrong with progressing. 
But when it's out of pride, this person, he wanted to know himself out of pride so that he can say, I know myself. I'm good. I'm better. I'm better than others. So he prayed. He prayed and asked God to know himself so he can see himself. And he did. God opened his spiritual eyes and he began to see what's in his soul. And he ran. He actually became like so scared, so terrorised, so disturbed that he couldn't even come near me anymore because he couldn't go near the priest, couldn't go anywhere, couldn't even go to church hardly. What does that remind you of? Adam and Eve. When they were in paradise, they were okay. They would see God, talk with God. But as soon as they did sin, which was out of pride, they ate the apple, which they shouldn't have, because they wanted to know the, the knowledge of good and evil, like today, like a lot of people want to know everything, which is demonic, like everything. Oh, powerful. We've become empowered because we've got the internet and we can know everything. That's pride. Adam and Eve wanted to know everything as well. They wanted to, come, to become above God. Only God knows everything, not us. What are we? So anyway, he became scared like Adam and Eve who hid when they heard God coming into, the, into paradise and they were hiding. And then he said, perhaps did you eat of the apple? And then, in other words, God already knew. But he did that on purpose to give them a chance to repent. But did they repent? Adam said, oh, I ate the apple because the woman that you gave me, she made me do it. And Eve said, I ate the apple because the, the serpent made me do it, the devil in other words. And then God condemned them and punished them out of love because, not because they'd sinned. God doesn't punish because we sin. God punishes, if we use the word punish, out of love to help to correct us because we don't repent. Anyway, so this person, once he saw himself, oh, he lost it. He really, really lost it. And he said to me often, he would say to me later on, when, if I ever spoke to him now and then, if I can get even close to him, because too busy running for the, I don't know, everywhere. And um, he said to me, years ago I had an operation. I think I've said this story before. And the operation was, I think, appendix or something. And it got infected. And he said it was very, oh, he went through a lot of pain. It was, he told me it was the worst pain he's ever experienced. It was excruciating, the pain that he went through. And he says, I'd rather go through 50 of them. I'd rather suffer 50 times of those rather than to see myself. Today, in the Orthodox world, one of the problems is that people don't want to spiritually struggle because when we spiritually struggle, one thing begins to become obvious. And this, what I'm going to say, is the essence of spiritual life. As soon as a person begins to struggle, like the young man with his parents, which I said, don't, don't do that, don't fight, just, just struggle with that or the guy who was cold towards his wife and his children. And I said, just struggle, 
struggle against it. In both cases, something happened, which is fantastic the way that spiritual life is. By trying to practice the commandments, they discovered something. What did they discover? Who knows? In both cases. Remember, the first guy said, he said, oh, I have to leave because I, I can't lead a spiritual life. The other person says, I can't do it. So what did they discover? Half there. They can't fight it, correct. Uh, they didn't, they didn't, no. You're, you're, you're there, but half. Leave the God's help out for a minute. Yep. To see how sinful they are. Mm. And to see how weak they are. And to see how impotent they are. And to see how they are nothing. Another example, which I wanted to say, a woman, she had a few children. Two examples. A few children there. I followed this example for many years, so I know. And I let it go because new to the church, you know, but after a while you've got to start saying, look, you know, it's time to do some struggle. You've got to struggle. So this woman had a couple of children. The first child was brought up by her mother-in-law. Like she mostly took that, brought up that child. So this mother, this wife didn't do how to do anything. The second child was brought up by her mother. And I think there was one more maybe. And the third child was brought up by her husband. Her husband mostly took care of it. And the fourth child was brought up by the older child in the family, the first child. So that was it. So about four children, I'd say. So the first child was brought up by her mother-in-law. The second child was brought up by her mother. The third child was brought up by, the, by her husband. And the fourth child was brought up by the first child. And I said to this woman, you know, look, I'm not being rude. I'm not being cutting to you. But you know that you've never really brought up one of your children. And she got really upset, very agitated. And I said, you know, I said that. Then anyway, after a long while of her protesting and becoming egotistical and becoming really off and her face was all scrounged up and all those things that they go through. I said, all you've got to do is admit it. And she goes, yes, that's true, I have it. I go, that's it. Okay, well, let's start now. Let's now start the struggle. Admit to God that you find it hard and then ask God to help you. And her answer was, yes, yes, yes. After that, no more contact. No telephone calls, never came to church, never, nothing. In other words, her answer was to me, as the Australians say, rack off. Right? In other words, get lost. No one's going to tell me that I've never brought up my children and no one's going to tell me to ask God to help me and no one's going to tell me to make a struggle to become a better mother. Basically, that's the language. She realised she was wrong, but as Alexi said at the back, she didn't go to the second step. Now that you know you're weak, now that you've seen it, now start to struggle with God's help. But when we're proud, like, the, like a devil, we don't ask God's help. The first fellow that I said about his parents, 
He realised that he couldn't do it. His answer was, I have to leave home. That was his answer. I have to leave home so that I can become a true Christian. Ego. I said, well, why don't you just stay where you are? But I can't. Stay where you are and struggle with God's help. Like Alexis said nicely, no, goodbye. The other person, what was the other person again? Well, oh, with his children. That's it. Okay, look, I understand that you've got a, a, a lack of love, but with God's help, with the grace of the church, with your struggle, the grace and your struggle, let's work together, when I used to confess in the old days, let's work together to get over this passion, to free yourself of this passion so that God then can come and dwell in you because God comes in to a humble and repentant person. Humble and repentant. If that woman who was going with the married guy, if she said to me I'm weak, if she was sorry and she was struggling and she was repentant and humbled because of it, seeing her weakness, etc., then God could have helped her. But no, she, she was not humble about it. Nor did she make one attempt. If she made an attempt, she would have come back in tears and said, I can't believe how strong this thing's in me. It's strong. That's all a priest wants to hear. When a priest hears that, it's like, oh, spiritual struggle. It's like, oh, you want to grab the person and hug them and say, Welcome to the spiritual life. This is the spiritual life. I don't hug very often. You know why? Because hardly no one wants to struggle. So another person said to me, I've got a passion. I said, yes. I know God's commandments is to have children. Yes, that's correct. It goes, well, I can't. It's a passion. It's a passion, she said. Okay, it's a passion. She goes, everyone's got passions. See the, the attitude? Everyone's got passions, as if she's a bloke. I go, okay. Um, do you belong to the feminist movement or something? Like, so this person was very aggressive and really talking to the priest. Like, it's a passion, all right? She goes, it's a passion. I go, you all right? Keep your nappy on. So I said, look, I've got something for you. I've got to see this book here. The Book of Needs, a special prayer book for priests. Book of Needs. I said, there's a special prayer in here, a specific prayer for women who have your problem, who are scared to have children and do God's will. If I read you this prayer, by the way, there, there, there is no prayer. If I read you this prayer, but I can just do a general prayer, but there was no specific prayer. So there was a little bit of a, a fib. Not good, is it? So I made this little fib. I said, there's a special prayer, and if I read this prayer for you, you will get over that passion that you've got. I said, isn't that good? Because it's such a passion, it's hard, and you said that you can't help it because you're weak. You know, She said she's struggling. She goes, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with it. I go, okay, good. So if you're struggling, it means you really want to, to do God's commandments. She says, yes. I go, I'll read you that prayer. And she goes, no, no, no way. I go, aha, so you're not really struggling. You don't want, you are actually using what the church says. And she goes, I'm struggling, I'm repentant, I'm weak. She said all the right words, 
But deep down it was all a con because she didn't want. See, there has to be a sincere struggle to do the commandments of God. When we do that, all the fruits come. If that person's, those persons said to me in truth and say, I'm weak, in truth, and they're really trying. Say a person has the internet problem, like I said before, which is really a powerful passion, horrible. How many marriages have been destroyed? Even lately there's one marriage which I've heard that someone told me that um, there was a divorce that happened and uh, that the man was actually indulging in those things. I mean, how can God stay in such a marriage? Anyway, so... If a person starts to see that that's wrong, not because the priest just said it, because he knows it's wrong, and he begins to say, this is no good. How is God going to come into my heart? How am I going to be sanctified? How am I going to be saved if I'm doing this type of um, life? And the person makes an effort, an effort to stop. So he makes an effort, and I mean an effort, where he's what we call in the, in the monastic tradition, where he's like he's spitting blood, where he's making oh, really an effort from within. And, he, and he, might, he might do it for one day or two days. And then, like a haivani, as we say, like, we say, like, a, like a, a weaky person, he runs back to it. Then he falls. Then he tries again. Then he runs back. Then he might do four days. And then he's there and he's there, and all of a sudden... He falls again, but he keeps on doing. Falls, tries, repents, falls, tries, repents. That's it. That's the spiritual life. That person, even though he's falling, but he's sincerely trying to stop, at the end of the day, that person will become a struggling Orthodox Christian. He will experience from within humility. Because he will say with humility, with his head down, like the publican in the, in the parable of the publican and Pharisee, where he will say, I can't, God have mercy on me, a sinner. That's when it comes from within, for all the passions. Like that book on repentance, it's called Return at the Back. There's some um, examples there. We hear about ascetic saints. Like great ascetics, we read there that there was an ascetic, a holy person, who was being hit continually, being tempted by the demons to fall. But these ascetics lived on their own. And the demons were trying to push him to fall into a sexual sin. But obviously, he can't fall into a sexual sin if he's on his own. So you can understand what the sin was that the devil was trying to push him into. And he was fighting him and fighting him. And he fell. From weakness, he fell. And it's what's called in orthodox terms self-abuse. It's a, it's a word which is a better word, self-abuse. And he, and, and he fell. And after he fell... He obtained more humility because he saw 
his weakness. And he must have, a lot of times, why we fall is because we trust ourselves. And God allows the devil to tempt us. But when we fall, as St. James says, we have made the decision to listen to the devil and we fall. That's because of our pride, which we all have, and hence why we all fall. But he, for experience, learned even more humility than what he had before. Now, as Orthodox Christians, if we struggle, we will start to learn humility. When I was in Jerusalem, I hope you don't uh, take this the wrong way and think that I'm deceived, but I'll just tell you the, the story, which is a true story. I think I've said this story before. I was young when I went to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage, about 26, 20, I don't know, 26, 27 maybe, and we were walking along with a Greek deacon there from the Patriarchate of Jerusalem there, and we're walking along the old city, and we, I noticed a monk with the ras on like this, and he was on the side of the road. I've said this story to some, but some of you haven't heard it. He was on the side of the road, and he was like on the wall, and he was like drunk. And I thought to myself, you know, that's um, what's happening. Like, like he's in the middle of the street, and everyone's looking at him that he's drunk. So we went up to him to see what was wrong. And somehow I came to me that this he's not drunk. I don't know how it happened, that it just came to me and I said, oh, I wonder if this is this Russian priest monk who lives at the place where Abraham, which is in English, um, gave hospitality to the three angels. There's a special place which the Russians have. Well, now I think, I think the Arabs threw them out, I'm not sure. But anyway, that was a special place there. It was, it was a church there. And that's, I, I had heard that there was a very holy man there and I wanted to go and see him. And somehow it came to me, I wonder if this is him. So I said, because he couldn't speak English or Greek. He was Russian. And the deacon I was with was Greek, so he couldn't speak. So I said, um, Otets, I knew Otets, at least I know that. Uh, Ignatio, he goes like that. He was saying, yeah, mm-hmm. And he was going his feet. He was showing his feet that from his old age, he actually couldn't walk. So he was actually, that's, that's why he was on the wall. And then I said, is, did I hear right? Did he say he is? And I remember that people told me that the Arabs, I think, tried to kill him, that when he was going to church or something like that, he was holding this icon and the bullet hit the icon and not him. So as a result of that, they said that he used to wear the icon around his neck continually in a pouch. So when I said the Otats Ignatius, then he kind of said, mm-hmm. And then we went to kiss his hand, and he wouldn't let us kiss his hand. You have to kiss the icon first, because all of a sudden he took the icon. So it was him. And I go, I can't believe it that, you know, that I finally met this great man, but in not very good circumstances. So we kissed the icon, and I think there was a dent in it where the bullet hit, where they said... And then he goes, you know, you want to go back to the monastery. And then we said, come, we'll take you to the, the Jerusalem Patriarchate there. And he goes, no, 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 liturgia, liturgia, which means that he has to do liturgy tomorrow. He used to serve every day, if I remember right. And he goes, liturgia, liturgia. I go, okay. So we took him to the bus terminal there with those taxis. And I said to the deacon then, I said, I'm going to go with him. And he said, no, you're not. And I go, what are you, my mother or something? Of course, if I want to go, I'm going to go. 
I'm going to lose the opportunity to be with this um, holy person. I'm going to take him. I want to take him back to the thing, even though really because he was in the car. But this was my opportunity. You know, I, so I'm not going to miss out. So we got into the taxi, and the Arabs were in there. Some Arabs there, and I was saying, "Ah, oh, Ignatius," because I know him because I live there, and I'm, you know, laughing and whatever. And he just ignored them, and um, he took out a banana, very simple, to get a banana, and he went like this, and I was shocked. I wasn't a priest, by the way. I was shocked because when he did the, the blessing, it was like something just came out of his hand. It was like it was so powerful. Um, when he did the, like he did it with faith to bless the banana. Imagine if he blesses how it would be. So we went there, and his disciple, you know, who's a monk, an old, because say, Father Ignatius must have been around, oh, he might have been about 80, while his disciple might have been around 65 or something. He was very old as well. And they used to take care of this place by themselves. And what happened was that everyone that used to go there, busloads of people used to go there, and they said, you go there and these two little old men actually bring out all this food and everyone eats, eats, eats. And we can't work out where does all the food come from? And it's like the miracle of where Abraham gave the hospitality to the three angels where Abraham used to, when people used to come past, say, come here, come here, come and eat. That's why he's known as the one who did hospitality. They wanted to continue that. Where that food came from, I don't know, but he was just... Food and food and food that people would say, busloads of people would come. Everyone got food. Anyway, they could not speak English or Greek and I couldn't speak Russian. So they were saying things there and they were trying to say to me, I've worked out they wanted my mother's name and my father's name and things like that and my name and so he was writing the names down. So I worked out the liturgy. Then they gave me food and then they said, because it's late and you don't go out in the streets over there because you'll get stoned or something. It's dangerous. So, and in, truly stoned, because uh, they throw rocks there and things like that. And um, they, uh, they showed me to the room. Now comes the part. Now don't get, don't get scandalised what I'm going to say. I've got an explanation for it. Doesn't mean I'm special, but this is what happened. So I'm in the room. Then suddenly... I felt something come into me which I'd never experienced before. It was a feeling of humility, like that I am bad, that I'm basically like the saints say, I'm the worst. I couldn't under- that I felt um, uh, this, in, this uh, uh, um, feeling of repentance, humility, goodness, etc. And I realised at the time that he was praying because I'd never experienced that before. Maybe touches, sometimes we all do, but not like that. That was very, very strong. And I knew that it was from his prayers because even if my worst enemy came to mind... You know, think of it, when you've got someone that you don't like and you bring them to mind, you become tense and you become like a thing because we haven't learned to love our enemies, which is the fruit of the grace of God. So even if I thought of someone who I disliked, I felt 
complete calm. I didn't have anything against that person. So that was a very, very um, intense experience, which was from his prayers. And the next day, they rang someone up who was Greek that could explain, and I was saying that the father's very happy that you brought him back, and all these things. And to me, it was a great thing. Father Ephraim, in his book on councils from the Holy Mountain, he actually says that experiences such as that are not as important as another type of experience. Could they be correct where they're saying that Father Ephraim is deceived? How can he say that when someone experiences the Holy Spirit in that way, that that's not as important as another experience. And what was the other experience that Elder Ephraim said in the book, which made, after this happened to me 25 years ago, that put, all, you know, put it into context. He said, the experience to have humility because God's grace comes in you, he said, this is not as important and can be dangerous because you can think that you're good and this. The other experience is more important. What's the other experience, Darka? What do you think it is? I think you, um, like, There's two Darkas. Let's go. I want you. Oh, well, it's like when you turn it into action, it's like um, a misfeeling, at least it, um, it tells you, you know, there's something wrong with you. But if you don't turn it into action, as in if you don't actually do something about it, then it's just something that's true. Like, if I actually took that experience and said, now I'm special and I don't have to struggle anymore because I met this holy person and this happened to me and did nothing about it, then I would fall into demonic temptation. A lot of people have received certain experiences, some more, some less than that, in the beginning, and actually believe that they're fantastic because of it. You're correct. And that's good. I didn't actually think of that. Um, that's good. But there's one more thing, that what the... Anthony. Oh, I saw the dark. Yes, I saw the darkness. I saw, but he said that that experience of, of having humility from the grace is not as important as another experience. That experience that I got came freely. It's from the grace. That's it. One comes from God's grace where we see ourselves as sinful. But that can come even to someone who may have not even struggled. It just was given. That's dangerous because we can forget about it. And it's not really deep from within the heart. Even though it was from grace, it, it, but, but we need something else. And what Alexis said was correct. Is that what you, is that what you were going to say? Sorry? Theosis is, theosis is um, beyond my spiritual caliber. We'll come to that later on. Um, I find that topic um, deep. That theosis is the ultimate. We're not, because I'm not even there, you people aren't there, I can't even, even, I wouldn't even be able to speak about it because it's just too deep. 
Later on, I'll read more about it and talk to you about it theoretically. Theosis is even above what he's saying. Yeah, it's, it's the ultimate. So let's go down to what he's saying, which is a bit safer. We'll come to that. Yeah, you're jumping too much. You're, you, you want to go to the university level when, you know, I mean, let's just say we're in here, we're high school level, which is what I used to be. High school. He want, it's like uh, Nicholas is saying, okay, let's do university, but I can't do that because I'm not a university teacher. I'm only, I'm only high school. See, this is up to the level. I can't go further than that because I don't know it. So I'm going up to what I know. That what you're talking about is more university level and we'll have to have other people to come to teach us that, like an elder, a friend or something. I don't... Um, that, but that's okay what you said. But back to what Alexi said so we can finish up. Elder Ephraim says, which is what all the elders say, that humility, which comes from our experience of our weaknesses, by our falls, by our constant repentance, by looking at our weaknesses, to see our thoughts, to see our passions, and to fight them and to fall, like I said before. See, we get the passion, we fight it, we fall, repent. Fight, fall, repent. It's a sequence. See? Let's say it together. Fight, fall, it's, it, it, repent. F-F-R. I used to teach kids at school like that. They have to do like certain ways. You know, obtuse angles, acute angles. Acute angles less than 90 because it's cute, small. See? You teach them all little things. So here we say F-F-R. What was it again? So we go, <laughs> I've lost it. I got distracted with the angles. What was it? Ah, fight, fall, repent. And then after that? Fight, fall, repent. And that's the actual spiritual life. That experience is superior to the other experience. And that's why it's dangerous when people come to the church and go, I experienced God. Some people have experienced God. They've come and they've actually felt the presence of God. And I say to them, like the person goes, oh, I'm reading the Akathos and I feel such, I feel really this thing. And I said, yes, that's good, but that's not enough. That can lead you to deception. That is from God's grace. But it's not experience of your weakness, of your passions. When we experience that, like the person in the internet, for example, anyone, whether it's an alcoholic, whether it's a person fighting with gambling, whether it's a person fighting with their ego, whether it's a, a, a wife that just keeps on talking back to the husband, or whether it's a husband that's putting down his wife in a bad way, all those are passions. You say to the husband, okay, you're putting down your wife, you're very negative, stop that, don't do it. And they start to struggle. They come back and go, I can't believe I fell again and again and again. I go, just keep on going. And that action makes that person into a spiritual being. Then, with communion, then that is where, the, where he gets even more help, spiritual help, sanctification, and the person continues on. So, I think uh, there's a little bit more. That, that's okay. So, in conclusion, spiritual struggle is important, especially 
the struggle against our own egos, the ego, the ego in us. Egoismo, we say in Greek, the gorda, I think they say in Serbian, pride, the pride in us. That's the beast. When a person begins to fight the pride, it's like he's fighting demons because behind the passions are the demons, as St John of Cronstadt says. And the one which makes us more close in nature to the demons is pride. Why did the angels fall from heaven? From pride. Why did Adam and Eve fall? From pride. Why did Judas go to hell? From pride. He did something bad. He betrayed Christ. He took the silver and things like that. He regretted it later on. And the Catholics are saying, perhaps we should make Judas a saint, which they've said on Talkback Radio, because he did repent. He regretted. He threw the money into the temple and said, this money is the blood is blood money. And then the Jews said, what's that got to do with us? You work it out. So why then does the church teach that he went to hell? Because he might have regretted it, but he didn't ask for God's mercy. He didn't ask for God's forgiveness. Regret's not enough. That's why I was saying before, people go to confession. They might regret, but there's not real repentance. And true repentance comes when we're struggling with our passions and we see that we're weak. That's all it is. That's, that's what I look for in a person. That's what I look for in a person. If a person does that, a person said to me lately, I want to become baptised, I want to become orthodox. And I said, okay. And he was saying that he was, he was, he was actually a bit um, impatient. He goes, oh, I've been going to church now for quite a few months now and I'm still not baptised. I go, yes. I said, but I'm not going to do it because I have to see the spiritual struggle. Because but aren't I doing that? I listen to your talks. I read books. Guys, it's not enough. It's not enough. I go, there's something that's missing. And I said, you'll see it. So I did something. I said to him, one of his faults. I said to him, that one, of his, one of his faults, you didn't listen to something. And I said, see, that's your ego. No, it's not. That's not my ego. You tried this. You did this. And all of a sudden, he just, after I told him his fault, and I said, as a priest, and then he said to me, um, oh, you tried to divorce me from my wife. You tried to do this. You tried to So where did all that come from? Where did all that come from? Just made it all up in his head. The ego. All he had to do was to say... Forgive me? What do I know anyway? I'm blind. I'm stupid. I'm weak. Instead, he just exploded. And he lost a lot of things. It's, called, it's what I call the crossroads. You know, crossroads, when we come to a road in our spiritual life, this is a very important thing and I'll, and I'll leave it. We're leading a spiritual life to some degree. Then we, then we come to what's called, we, we suddenly meet our ego. We suddenly meet our pride, the pride in us. We actually see it. And it's like you have to really humble yourself, ask God forgiveness, ask those around you forgiveness to admit yourself that you're an egotist. And then if you do that, then you go that way, 
which leads you to paradise. But if we go this way, which is when we don't admit it, when we become like really kicking against people that are telling us our faults and kicking against the spiritual father and kicking against our not wanting to see our ego, not admitting ourselves, we go that way, we're finished. And all of you, some of you have already come to those crossroads and some of you, if you continue, will come to those crossroads. It's when you meet the demon of the ego which is in us face to face. Don't make the mistake and not admit your mistakes because after that it's very hard to come back. Not impossible, but very hard. The same as the demons. They made a mistake. They came to their road. They went against God. That's it. They know God's full of love. They know God's forgiveness. All they had to do was say, forgive me. Go back with God. No, they didn't want that. Their ego, their pride, they go, why should I say sorry to him? And that they went that way. Through the prayers of our Holy Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of mercy, save us. Amen.